Hi there, I'm Dan Jones, and this is my podcast, Climate Scientists. I'm an oceanographer working at the British Antarctic Survey in Cambridge, UK, and on this podcast I have long, informal conversation with people whose work intersects with climate in some way. If you're a new listener, welcome. Thanks for checking it out. Thanks for downloading or streaming or however you are accessing this. And if you're a returning listener or a longtime listener, I owe you an apology. <laughs> it has taken me way too long this month to get the uh, episode up, the October episode up. So uh, it, yeah, I'm a good kind of couple weeks behind schedule here in terms of actually getting your episode up. So thanks for uh, being patient. <laughs> And uh, uh, my apologies for the for the delay on that. Yeah, it's it's just it's a bit much uh, in terms of I've just got too much going on to be honest, and that's kind of a lame thing to say, but it's it's true. Um, I could really I could use a producer, honestly. Um, I'm kind of half toying with the idea of maybe doing a Patreon or something, so I could hire a producer who could actually you know spend time putting these recordings together. I don't know. Uh, I'm not going to make any announcements. I'll think about it. So I'm really happy to give you this episode with Dr. Anna Harper. We recorded this a long time ago, uh, back in the summer, when she was here for a workshop, for an ongoing workshop that we talk about during the episode. She is a lecturer in climate science at the University of Exeter in the uh, mathematics Uh, department, actually. And I'm just going to read you a little bit from her profile here. So Dr. Harper is interested in the role of vegetation in climate change and the role of land-atmosphere interactions in current and future climate. Some of the questions include, how will forests respond to climate change? How will the land surface continue to be a carbon sink? Will it continue to be a carbon sink? What land management practices can contribute to reducing greenhouse gases in the atmosphere? Are there feedbacks from the way vegetation responds to climate change that we need to consider? That's just reading you a few things off of her off of her profile there. So uh, Anna and I, we've known each other since we were both PhD students out at Colorado State University in Fort Collins. And uh, we got to know each other there, and as we discuss a little bit on the podcast, we've had a weirdly kind of parallel paths. We both grew up in the state of Georgia. We both went out to Colorado for grad school. We both have uh, kids who their ages are similar, and we both moved to the UK after finishing our PhD. So it's been it's been kind of a bizarrely parallel path, but I'm really glad to know her. I'm really glad to have her as a friend and as a, a colleague, she's not in the same subfield that I am, but she's in the same kind of broad, you know, umbrella of climate climate science. And uh, yeah, so we had a really nice nice chat, and I'm really happy that we were able to sit down and discuss some of her work and discuss her kind of pathway into science. So I think I've got all of the upfront material, all the upfront stuff that I needed to talk about out of the way, which was basically just an apology from me on being late um, I do have another couple of these recorded, ready to go, so I'm going to do my best to get them out about the middle of the month from here on out. Uh, I will I will do my best. I will keep pressing on. I, I still really enjoy doing these, and they seem to be worthwhile, so I'm going to keep putting them out there to the best of my ability. But, uh, yeah, okay, let's go ahead and 
switch things over to Dr. Anna Harper. You can find her on Twitter at Doc A. Harper. That's her handle. All one word. No underscores, no dashes or anything. Just Doc A. Harper. Okay, here we go. That sounds good. I've got the doors closed for the sound, cool. but or the windows closed rather um, <laughs> for the sound. But if it gets really hot, we can open them, and that's fine. Okay. Like, so let me know, you know, how you're doing. Yeah. Cool. Water, um, coffee over there. So those are yours. Important stuff. Then, yeah, yeah. Thank you. Absolutely. Mm. So yeah, thanks for doing this. We mm. we got to talk about this thing a long time ago, kind of when I was still sort of thinking of doing it. So yeah. It's it's great to have you like here to give it a try to like you know have a conversation and yeah and do the podcast <laughs> yeah I remember when you were yeah kind of thinking about the idea and it sounded really good but I thought oh he's gonna ask me someday <laughs> was that so. um a good or like yeah the, oh no here it comes no I don't mind, <laughs> don't mind. <laughs> yeah yeah good yeah so you, you're you've been in town for this like there's not really an agenda or anything. I've got some stuff written down. Yeah, you know, cool. But it's not like a set of questions that we have to stick to or anything. Okay. Um, it's just more, I like having a little notebook out here. Yeah. So I can pretend to jot stuff down sometimes. Or like, you know, I'll write something down if I if we don't want to forget it and we want to come back to it later. Okay, right? yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Cool. So like, it, it's often kind of nice. You can start with like, um, well, we can talk about whatever you want, really. Yeah. You know, there's no constraints, but um, sometimes like a nice place to start is you talk about kind of what you've been up to lately. Yeah. So I thought, so you've been in town for like this Isaac Newton Institute. Yeah. Uh, and we talked about it a little bit, but can you like remind me what it is again? So there's this Isaac Newton Institute up the road. They host these long programs like over the summer. It can be a few months and they yeah. invite people to basically come live in Cambridge for a few months and be, you know, at the Isaac Newton Institute and to uh, yeah. really dig into some, some mathematical related problems. And, right. Yeah. I mean, I guess this is kind of common in mathematics, but I'd never heard of anything like it before. But yeah, it's been a five-week program on landscape decisions. Um, And yeah, so it's been five weeks. And like you said, people just hanging around, talking about this issue. I think an interesting thing about this one is it's um, mathematicians and ecologists and then people like me who are more on the climate side. So there's all these... It's very interdisciplinary, actually, and it's really it's been really interesting. What does landscape decisions mean? So, what does that relate to? Are we recording now? Yeah, okay. yeah. It's all. <laughs> um, Is that all right? It's not a trick. You just kind of like no, no, go into no, it's it. Perfect. Yeah. Um, so it's it's well, it's an interesting time because the UK has just declared like legislation to be net zero emissions by 2050. Yeah. And then most likely. Brexit coming out of the EU and having to determine their own... What's that? Act- I've never heard of that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's the big elephant in the room yeah. always. <laughs> um, yeah. So they so need to decide a different agricultural policy, like how the land is valued or if there's, um, yeah, different ways of deciding where agriculture should be or what kind of crops should be grown. Um, yeah. So the idea is to kind of come up with some mathematical solutions to what's the best use of the land, even though like 
best use of the land is really subjective. Sure. And there's lots yeah. of definitions of it. Yeah. Um, but saying if you could define it, yeah. then how do you work out the math to figure out exactly yeah, what, what that looks like in terms of a, actual decisions about crops and yeah. placement of crops? Yeah. Hmm. And then with the net zero um, initiative, then that's that makes land use even, well, also very important because you get agriculture is a large emission of um, greenhouse gases. So land use change will be really important for how the UK meets net zero. And there's lots of ambition to build lots of, or grow lots of forests. So where's the best place for the forest to go? Yeah. And all these kinds of things. So it's, yeah, it's really interesting. And um, yeah, it's a big question. <laughs> yeah. When you mentioned their subjective, I would imagine like, does it happen sometimes that one objective kind of can conflict with another? Like, oh, well, we want to reduce carbon emissions. Oh, well, that will put a constraint on, I don't even know what, I don't, I don't know the field well enough to know. Like, yeah. are there any conflicts like that where like, oh, we're going to have to balance these two things against each other, these two interests or these two, or yeah. does it all kind of work together? No, I think it can be really conflicting. So like, I think bioenergy crops for, are a good example of this because they're really good for removing carbon from the atmosphere. And if you combine them with carbon capture and storage, which is something that the UK also has ambitions to do, then you're actually drawing like drawing down CO2 from the atmosphere and keeping it out. But how you do that and where they go can have other big impacts on water, on um, biodiversity, on soil carbon. Uh, so yeah, just because you're, so maybe you're getting the benefit of drawing down carbon dioxide, but you're if you have monocultures or something, then that's not good for biodiversity. Like a single kind of, of plant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I don't know a so. lot in that area, but I understand that's a bad idea for a few reasons. One of them being if if a really uh, hardy disease comes along that you could, yeah. you know, th th let's say you got one strain of something, right? And that yeah. could get wiped out by that disease. Whereas if you have a bunch of different kind of species of plants, then mm. it's not it's less likely, right, that then one kind of disease could come along and really wipe out the whole thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 That's just one example I'm broadly familiar with. Mm -hmm. I remember um, a friend of mine, uh, when we were talking about this, um, uh, this is many years ago now, but like she mentioned the idea of, oh, well, if you, if you have bio crops uh, or like, you know, crops for just for the purpose just of g generating energy, mm. um, she was wondering, does that ever... <laughs> Does that cause a problem in terms of, oh, well, we need that land to grow crops, like to grow food to eat? Yeah. And the way she put it, I thought was so funny. She's like, so man and machine are going to be fighting for food. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Is that, yeah. Is that one of the equations to balance as well? Is that one of the, Def you know? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you might be, assume that we can increase how much food we can get from the land that we already have in the future with technological advances or... Yeah growing meat in labs, nice. <laughs> that kind of thing, yeah. um, in which case you might be able to use some agricultural land for bioenergy crops, but that's a huge question. Is that, is that trade-off between food and energy? Yeah. Um, yeah, you're, yeah. The, the lab-grown stuff probably would help a lot, wouldn't it? Because, like, you know, animals have to eat stuff, and so I, from what I understand, like a ton of our, well, a lot of our kind of land that we grow crops on is specifically to feed animals so that we can then go eat those animals. Exactly. And, you know, yeah. Um, so that they have a big kind of footprint in that way. Yeah. Beef you know. production is, yeah, there's, like you said, it's a huge footprint environmentally and greenhouse, like climate wise, the emissions um, from methane from the cows uh, is, has a big impact on climate. So yeah. 
Yeah, we've had some really good methane people on here to talk. Yeah, uh, Michelle nice. Kane, for example, and uh, a couple other folks. Yeah, and I've been here. Excuse me. I've been in the UK seven years, and I still can't say methane. <laughs> I just I don't can't, know. can't bring myself to, <laughs> no, to say it. <laughs> I can't either. Uh, the other day, uh, another American colleague visited, and yeah. uh, we didn't talk about it, but we slipped right into saying uh, Z again instead of Z. Yeah. I'm like, ah, finally, okay. <laughs> I can drop the Z Freedom. thing. I can just yeah. say, say Z. Um, yeah, I think I would have a hard time saying, saying methane. And I also don't want to, well, you know, yeah, I think I think it just sounds wrong. I, it feels wrong in my tongue. It's fine if other people say it. That's that's fine. Yeah, it I doesn't agree. bother me. But like, <laughs> I, I tried in a few talks and I just felt like a poser. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I wasn't being true to myself. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. So. Yeah. Um, so when you're trying to make mathematical models for landscape decisions, what do those look like? Is it a mix of? I mean, what, I'm trying to get some kind of vague picture for what those. You know, it's a differential. There must be some differential equations in there. There must be some. Yeah. Can you kind of describe what the, that overall looks like? What, what kind of stuff have people been putting on the board? You know, in in very general terms. Um, I guess I maybe mostly it's kind of the mathematical processes. So like, kind of using. Do you want to use emulators to represent processes on the land so oh, right. that you can quickly analyze solutions or analyze scenar- scenarios um, without having to run a whole s- suit of models? Hmm. Um, and then how do you kind of... Uh, a question about scale. So like what scale is important for your model? Because there's ecological niche models that focus on a really small... Yeah. like a Spatial scales and temporal scales. Spatial scales, yeah. yeah. They might focus on a small you know, one woodland, but then can you scale that up somehow? And so using different um, techniques with the, like, adjustable grids and that kind of thing to to kind of zoom in or out on the area yeah. that you care about. Um, it's cool. There's an, an analog there with fluid dynamics, how, you know, potentially mm. every scale is important, but yeah. when you're creating a mathematical model, it's too expensive to model every single scale, so you have to make some choices, mm-hmm. right, about where do you have scale separation, right? Like where you can just treat these scales separately from these scales. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting because, well, yeah, when we were doing our PhD, I was in a center that did multi-scale modeling. Yeah. And uh, the idea that you can represent, like a in a grid cell, you can represent convection by just having a curtain of really highly resolved um, cloud-resolving resol- models mm-hmm. in there. Um, and then, you know, s- s- assume that applies to the whole the whole grid cell. And... Yeah, it's an, it's interesting to see if kind of these things that we've learned from atmospheric modeling could could also apply to landscape things. But the, I guess the difference is um, the the land surface is so heterogene, heterogeneous heter, heterogeneous different <laughs> different, different places. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, you know, you have rocks and soils, and uh, so you. I think that's when you have to have these really tricky mathematical solutions to decide where can you kind of generalize and where can you where can you average and where can you zoom in and out? Oh, right. Um, so like some the, talk about using like e, uh, EOFs, empirical orthogonal functions, yeah. to um, look for patterns in the landscape that you can model that way. But, yeah, yeah, EOFs, they, they, you try to find modes of variation, right? Mm-hmm. Like the spatial patterns that uh, statistically explain the biggest patterns of the variation. So, yeah. you know, if you apply EOF to a lot of data, to a lot of... Um, Climate data usually the first thing that pops out is the seasonal cycle because that's the big, mm-hmm. the big variation. 
but then it's neat there are high, there can be higher order you know kind of modes of variability that aren't aren't talked about as much yeah or that you know that deserve some extra attention mm-hmm. so that's cool so multi-scale modeling so you're seeing some of that same kind of multi-scale approach where in a given grid cell you've got a smaller model to try to represent some of the smaller spatial scales mm-hmm. you know, and, and like people have to make decisions about <clears throat> how to do that efficiently yeah. how to make there's trade-offs I guess for accuracy versus um, computational efficiency yeah 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 so what's um what's your kind of interest in in that where do you kind of see yourself kind of plugged into that picture yeah where did your, your research fall into that so I normally run global scale um, dynamic vegetation model called Joules. Um, and so typically I'm thinking about like century time scale carbon cycle on the land surface. How will the land respond to climate change and how will um, forests change and how does that affect how much carbon is stored on, on the ground? Um, but the past few years I've been looking at this question about bioenergy crops and um, so to meet, say, like a two-degree target, um, if you could use bioenergy crops with carbon capture and storage, but it would require potentially massive amounts of land. Um, so some, some scenarios um, from the last IPCC assessment report, that I think it was the, me- the median amount of land um, that was given to bioenergy crops in those scenarios was two times the size of India. Okay. So it's like yeah. a really large really large space spread out over the planet spread out over the planet but as you said that has implications for food production um and land you know what what was there before there were bioenergy crops right so that's what i've been thinking about the last few years yeah so i guess to you know to start with a really simple um description which will be good for me because it's just it's it's not my area Mm -hmm. at all um so vegetation you know plants trees they take up carbon from the atmosphere mm-hmm. because they use it to create their um, their structure. You know, right. They use it to create their um, their form. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. I remember, um, you know, Scott Denning. I think it was Scott Denning, or maybe I'm getting this from somewhere else. But um, you know, we both knew him at, at Colorado State, mm-hmm. saying something about um, that. Well, trees grow out of the air. The trees. Are yeah. Like, <laughs> that uh, the trees are putting themselves together. Using, of course, you know some nutrients from the soil, but yeah. they're also drawing a lot of you know carbon from the the air and yeah. using that to build themselves. So because of that, it can be a sink, right? It can be right. a sink of. And this figure might be a little bit outdated, but I seem to recall that um, it wasn't like roughly a third of anthropogenic emissions of carbon dioxide is ending up in the the land and in plants yeah. and in that part of the, you know, the the land surface and the vegetation mm-hmm. that's, that's still about right huh? yeah that's yeah. about right yeah yeah so it's a big part of the um, carbon sink at the moment and it's helping to slow down the rate of surface warming yeah yeah by storing a lot of carbon yeah um yeah so cool so you're modeling that uh, that part of the climate system and how it responds to the future so in, yeah. in a global kind of context um using so jewels so how does Jules represent the biosphere? Like, what does that what does that do, what does that look like? So it, it starts with the process uh, you were describing of photosynthesis. So the plants taking carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, yeah. um, and then res- respiration happens as well. So the plants also lose some carbon dioxide for maintenance and growth. Yeah. Um, and then the trees grow um, in the in the model, and then they can lose carbon. You know, like 
branches fall off and leaves fall off and that adds soil carbon oh, wow. so it represents the soil <laughs> carbon cycle as well yeah and like you said you can't represent individual branches falling off so you have to have some rate i guess so yeah like, there's a rate at which branches fall off generally yeah we're pretty <laughs> uh crude about that there's some average rate yeah, you have <laughs> to be just, yeah, you can't model the trees no <laughs> yeah we're not yeah. to the point of modeling individual trees quite yet <laughs> um but yeah, so that so it models the vegetation and how it grows. It's it's also doing latent and sensible heat flux and the momentum exchange with the atmosphere because it's the oh, the momentum. land surface um, of the Hadley Center models or the now the UK Earth System model. So it it is needed for the climate simulations as well. I had no idea that was in there. So yeah. the, the, there's a momentum exchange from like the wind mm. blowing against forests of various thicknesses yeah, right? yeah. exactly oh, that's cool yeah i yeah i don't look in that part of the code very often but okay. yeah it's important yeah. for weather i don't have a great sense for how big that is but i guess that must be a decent sink of momentum huh i mean uh, uh, lands and uh, vegetation and also mountains and things and yeah you know. and um so the roughness length of the surface can change depending on the what you know what's growing there or how sparse the vegetation is so that yeah that affects the the wind and the eddies and all this. But I, I guess, so you think a lot about momentum and ocean, the ocean as well. And yeah. a different, maybe in a flipped <laughs> perspective though. Yeah, because the winds impart momentum yeah. in the Southern Ocean, for example, mm -hmm. and that's one place. And then that momentum can get um, extracted by, there's a, you know, pressure at the bottom is kind of where that's getting extracted against the seamounts and things. Mm. So yeah, okay. So. But in the part that you look at, or the part that you work with, so that's representing the vegetation and representing those mm. processes, yeah. Yeah. What's um, what's like? An, do you have a, an example of a kind of study that you did? You mentioned looking at different climate scenarios, or a kind of study that you've been involved with, or. Something. Yeah. So so recently, um, we we looked at some of the scenarios for the one and a half degree climate change um, target. Yeah. So after the 2015 Paris Agreement, and then there was a big call for researchers to do some science to figure out if one and a half degrees is feasible. Or right. um, And it was also like to look at the difference between a 1.5 degree world and a 2 degree world, right? Yeah. That was part of it, yeah. Yeah, and so the question, like what we were really interested in the question of if you, if you have methods to get to one and a half degrees, is it is it worth it? Like, cause if you have yeah. a large scale mitigation scenario that say uses a lot of bioenergy crops, like, is that, is that something you actually want to do? Or would you just be better off having the extra half degree of warming? Um, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, okay. yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah. So we were interested in if it was worth it to do these mitigation scenarios and also are they actually effective? Um, because sometimes the integrated assessment models that make these, um, scenarios that go into the models that are part of the IPCC. They sometimes have kind of crude representations of the land surface, um, but we were working with one model called Image, which actually has it's pretty it's a pretty good representation of the land surface. But we still wanted to kind of double check their scenario and see if mm. if their mitigation was kind of possible. Mm. So we looked at. Um, a scenario of land use change for one and a half degrees compared to a scenario of land use change for two degrees. Um, and the difference between them was for one and a half degrees, there was a lot more bioenergy crops. And then... So are these these are different strategies for yeah. staying under one and a half degrees versus staying under two, two degrees. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 
Yeah, so the one and a half degree scenario had a lot of bioenergy crops and also tropical reforestation, so just letting trees regrow in the tropics. Uh, and in this one scenario that we analyzed, they also happened to deforest a lot of boreal forests, um, so boreal, like the high latitude forests, um, and plant bioenergy crops there, which we found wasn't worth it because you ended up losing lots of carbon from the trees, of course, but also from the soils. Um, after you remove the trees, the soils are kind of trying to get back into an equilibrium carbon state. Mm. Um, so as they're doing that, they're losing carbon to the at- carbon dioxide to the atmosphere. So this big mitigation scenario um, for one and a half degrees didn't work out from our uh, simulations. So that was something we published in Nature Communications about a year ago. Yeah. Um, yeah, and it was really interesting. But I think, you know, it was very scenario dependent. But I think the main thing that it pointed out was that uh, there needs to be kind of more communication between the integrated assessment models and the climate modeling community so that we don't end up with these scenarios that kind of produce unrealistic results because mm-hmm. those get built into the IPCC assessment reports. Yeah. Um, so when you say it didn't work out, can you say a little bit more about that? I, I don't think I quite latched yeah. on to like why didn't it work out. So you're saying that there, because I, I imagine there's probably lots of different scenarios, lots of different approaches you could take to try to stay under one and a half degrees, but you were just specifically looking at the land use part of it. That's right. Like, how do we optimize the land use? Um, how did you decide kind of which scenarios to try out, right? Because I guess there's possibly multiple different solutions that could, you know, yeah. that, that could get you there. Um, but there must be a kind of a, a standard parameter space to explore, I'm guessing. You know, some some space that, you, like, folks in your field are familiar with, of like, oh, this is a way to go versus this is a way to go. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so first when I said doesn't work out, so I meant um, the scenario that was meant to stay below one and a half degrees when we ran that land use scenario in our, in our land surface model, um, you ended up with more carbon dioxide being released to the atmosphere from mm-hmm. the land than in the two degree scenario. Right. So oh, really? there was lots of, yeah, yeah, there was lots of work to use the land as a carbon sink, but it ended up being a slight carbon source. Um, and that was because of this okay. deforestation at high latitudes. Right. Okay. Okay. I yeah. Think, yeah. I think I, I understand now. Like, so here's two different strategies mm-hmm. and you know, naively you might think, okay, well, let's go with the 1.5 degree strategy because that sound, sounds better. Mm-hmm. But when you tried it out using a kind of more sophisticated, you know, you and your collaborators um, using a more sophisticated kind of land use model actually mm-hmm. found out, oh, no, it does the, the opposite. You actually get more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere under yeah. the, the scenario that's trying to stay under 1.5 degrees than you do. That's a surprise. Yeah, um, we were surprised. It's kind of scary. It makes you me worry about what other little yeah. <laughs> surprises are there like that. We yeah, yeah, we we thought we were going to look at kind of a scenario that worked and the trade-offs that you get with that. Like we were talking about earlier, yeah. like what kind of trade-offs are there with the with hydrologic cycle or um, sur- like surface temperature changes due to the land use change. Um, but then yeah, it ended up being that the the main story was don't cut down trees, which actually we were pretty happy to see that result come out, but it yeah. wasn't really what we expected. Ironically, it's not what we expected to have at the right. beginning. So yeah. That makes me think about 
and I'm, I'm not putting you on the spot about geoengineering because, I mean, that's not something that I'm really familiar with. Yeah. But it, that, that result kind of, that's what it makes me think of is yeah. like, well, when you hear about geoengineering proposals, um, I don't know, maybe we're going to have to do some stuff like that. But at the same time, that result that you just described suggests yeah, there's some parts of the system we don't understand well enough to go playing with yeah. it because it might actually do the opposite of what we're intending yeah. um, because it's a big, complex, nonlinear system with multi-scale interactions and every scale interacts with every other scale on different time scales. And, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah, the, the plethora of unintended consequences that could come from geoengineering is, I think, a bit... Frightening. So, yeah. yeah. Is it something yeah. people talk about in your, your field at all? Um, I mean, you sort of, it's in a way, I guess you, you are talking about that in terms of different scenarios, sort of. Yeah, I mean, technically, I guess if you're doing um, carbon dioxide removal, which is what this bioenergy with carbon capture and storage would be, then that is actually technically geoengineering because yeah. you're purposefully doing something to change the climate. So it's kind of like on the side of the geoengineering community, right. but not fully in it with, um, you know, stratospheric aerosols or space mirrors. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, that's right. I guess if someone were being pedantic, they could say, well, anything we do is, is geoengineering. Yeah. Deciding not to uh, mitigate climate change is geoengineering. Now that we know that, you know, carbon dioxide's changing it and yeah. we should maybe do something but. yeah no definitely but just get that kind of i guess the message there is um yeah we're involved and yeah. now we're gonna have to do something or not do something but yeah. um we can't just um you know we're we're we're, we're involved yeah it's, it's we're part of it we can't we yeah we can't turn a blind eye no yeah no so the bioenergy crop stuff, so that that was your fellowship, right? I think, think yeah, I had an yeah. EPSRC, Living with Environmental Change Fellowship, to do, do that. To, yeah. Do you want to talk about that some? Well, that was uh, the main point. That was the that main was thing the... about it was to look at these scenarios. Actually, originally it wasn't to look at one and a half degree scenarios. It was just in general, um, in future climate, what role does bioenergy with carbon capture and storage play? Um, but yeah, I had a tremendous stroke of luck or, yeah, when I was writing my fellowship application because I wrote it early in 2015 um, and then the Paris climate talks happened and then all of a sudden this became very relevant. So yeah. it was definitely a case of kind of a decent idea at a very good time. <laughs> and it, I know it's, yeah. Right place, right time. Right, yeah. yeah that <laughs> yeah. helps so much, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. And then, I mean, you have to put the effort in and you have to put, like, you have to do it. Yeah, it was <laughs> still to, work. Like, yeah. yeah, but it just, it kind of highlighted to me how much of what we do. Yeah, you work really hard, but then occasionally you just get this break that yeah. you d you couldn't have expected. And Absolutely. You, you end up going a different path for a while. So <laughs> You apply the, to the right thing at the right time. Yeah. It just happens to work out. Yeah. But on the other side of that, um, I've talked about it here in the podcast before. I, lo I love this idea of the anti-CV also, Okay. where you list everything that didn't work. Oh, <laughs> like, I like that. Yeah. Well, here's all the... Um, here's all the grants I didn't get and here's all the jobs I didn't get. Yeah. Here's all the um, ideas that didn't work out. Yeah. And um, I think it would take a lot of self-confidence to put that anti-CV out there, but maybe we should. Maybe that would be like, because uh, it kind of makes it seem less intimidating, right? It to, would make people you know, feel better, I think, to see that it's really common to fail. Yeah. <laughs> I was just, re I never do this, but I was just reorganizing my um, folders on my computer because I have this whole big folder of proposals, and I was like, oh, I need to organize this. So I had a um, in-progress, succeeded, and failed folder. 
and it was a little depressing to see how big mm. the failed folder was and the succeeded had like three things in there. <laughs> uh, that's totally normal though. Yeah. I, think, yeah. I, I mean, pretty much everybody experiences that. Right? Yeah. There's, um, and one of my first research kind of advisors told me to like have a portfolio, you know, have like a set of things that are low risk that will probably work out, but probably won't be a big deal. Mm-hmm. Have the, and then on the other end, have the high risk stuff that probably won't work out, but if it did, it would be really cool. Yeah. And so if you adopt that kind of mindset, then like well, failure is totally normal, like a normal part of having that mm-hmm. profile and of having that like set of projects. And yeah, and, um, yeah no, you, it's, it happens all the time and you have to just keep going and you have to just keep you know, keep your, if you want to, you have to keep going. Yeah. That's something you want to do. Yeah. Um, And I think, yeah, when you get some, I don't know, I've occasionally had some really disappointing paper rejections or a grant didn't work out that I wanted to. And I think I found it also helps to just give yourself some time if you need it, like, you know, take the afternoon off or something, mm. or just don't, don't expect yourself just to jump right back into doing stuff because yeah. it can be a blow sometimes but yeah you got to keep going yeah so. absolutely even like getting a kind of bad paper review yeah uh, I think I, I usually find like okay I'll read it once and I'll have a an emotional reaction which is probably too big yeah. <laughs> I'm probably taking it too personally so then I just forget about it I walk away or do something else or like you said take the afternoon off if it's bad enough take the afternoon off yeah absolutely yeah. <laughs> we're really fortunate that we can do that though we, we have that flexibility that's true yeah yeah <laughs> not everybody has that in their job but we can we can do that if we really need to yeah we can, like okay i'm, I'm not <laughs> i'm off the yeah. rest of the day because um, i'm not gonna because uh, there's parts of the work that that you do that like is creative and you have to have some kind of engine yeah you know driving that and um, I mean, there's something to be said for like sitting down and doing it, but at the same time, if that engine's not running and it's, it's pretty tough to kind of, yeah. kind of force it through, I guess that's when you do boring paperwork or something. That's you know, the, true. The stuff that doesn't take any creative like impetus and doesn't take any feeling of like, yeah, I want to do this. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But the anti, the anti CV. I like that idea yeah. actually. Yeah. You, you put one out and then I'll follow. <laughs> no, uh, yeah, you first. You go. <laughs> no, I saw a, a, I forget who did it, but it was a senior, more senior scientist. Nice. It's probably easier once you like established and have tenure and stuff. Yeah. But, but it's a great thing for them to do because then they can show, you know, people who are coming up, like, don't mm. worry, it's fine. If you're, if not, if things don't seem to be working out, that's a completely normal part of this scientific yeah. experience and pretty much everything you do. Yeah. Um, what's the quote about, um, about the first step to being good at something. The first step to being sort of good at something is to suck at something. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So like you have to fail a bunch. Yeah, that's uh, true. Before you can get there. Um, Other little quotes. What's the other one about, um, oh, the master has failed more times than the novice has tried, I think is another one. Oh, that's good. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Yeah, but it it is like, you just have to keep going. I don't know. Yeah. And it's, it is hard to stay positive sometimes. And it is, Mm. I mean, it's easy to get, get down, um, about the, sometimes insecurity of the, the kind of work that we do, the kind mm-hmm. of short, you know, short term contracts and the sort of trials of it. And, and there yeah. are people who decide to go do something else and, and, uh, who find, you know, non-academic stuff com- totally fulfilling and challenging and mm-hmm. exciting. And I, w- I always want to talk to more of those people cause I feel like I have a very poor sense of kind of where people who like, where has our, where has our kind of PhD cohort, yeah. for example, gone? Um, you know, that I know I'm kind of aware of the ones who are sort of in, in research and I guess I have some of them on Facebook and, um, 
One guy yeah. started his own YouTube channel. <laughs> really? <laughs> right. He moved to, um, I think it's Gavin Gavin Roy, I think it okay. was. Okay, yeah. So he moved to Brazil and started his own YouTube channel about speaking uh, English and Portuguese. I think oh, wow. it was a, I think it's a Portuguese language channel about speaking English. Although I could be getting that backwards, yeah. I forget. But apparently, it's really popular in in Brazil. And he was on like a late night chat show and That's like amazing, you know, yeah. but not science not science related at all. Just communi- communications. Communication, that, yeah. yeah, yeah, research. That's great. Um, no. Uh, that's probably not a super typical story, but like yeah. it's an exa- it's a cool example of somebody, you know. It, it's he did the PhD and it's it's great and uh, he's taken that off in a completely different direction and yeah. made something really interesting. That's really good. I gotta I gotta admire him for like taking that leap and for go, you know kind of going for it. Yeah, um, yeah. It must be really scary because I in some ways I feel like even though being in academia is really stressful and all this, but you're you're safe, you know, you kind of know the rules of the game and you know the people you work with. So stepping out of that, I think, would be, yeah, kind of terrifying. It seems like it would be a hard step, right? Yeah. yeah. Like you'd have to have a nice network in place mm-hmm. before you do it or as you're making that transition. And then that network, that's, that community is probably like the set of people who could help, mm-hmm. you know, guide you into that. I don't know, do you, are you ever yeah. aware of anybody who's like gone outside of academia or... Because um, there are people, yeah. right? Yeah, I know some. I, I know someone who went and worked for. I think it was Microsoft doing um, programming. Because we, of course, we do tons of computer programming. And um, if you're really good at making nice graphics or something, mm. then I think that's possibly a place that people could go. I think, she, and yeah, she's been really happy um, in that job, and it still allows her kind of re- creativity um, in what she does, but yeah. without the as much of the stress, I suppose. So yeah, yeah. yeah. And I've, I've talked about it a lot on here, so you know, my apologies to the regular <laughs> listeners who have heard me talk about this way too much. But um, I just feel like we don't do a great job of keeping up with those folks who you know have have taken these paths. And um, you know, a- academia is the weird alternative career path. Most people. You yeah, know, I forget not, that sometimes. Yeah, we're the we're the weird ones. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're definitely the weird ones. That there's a. There's many, many different paths out there, and people are taking yeah. them. And just like as a as a community, we're not doing a great job at like keeping in touch with those folks. But yeah. then again, they they have their own, they have their new careers, they have their own new lives. I mean, they're they're under no obligation to keep coming back to yeah. the community and reporting what they're up to. Um, but uh, it yeah. could be good, good, could be good for current kind of people to be aware of what pathways there are. Yeah, I think so because sometimes you get this feeling like. Once you're in academia, you need to stay in it. And if you if you leave, then you're you've kind of it's because you've failed, you know, and you're not you're not good enough for this community. But that's not the case at all. You no. can you're just yeah finding fulfillment somewhere else. That's right. And I think sometimes it's just literally about the job market. Yeah, just that's like true too. Where it, can you get a job? Yeah, it, it might have nothing to do with you at all. Yeah, <laughs> like you might be a perfectly yeah, yeah. good candidate in many ways, yeah. and the literal truth could just be. Uh, sorry, there's just too many applicants relative to the number of positions. Yeah. 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 So I think that's important for students as well. Like, you know, undergrad all the way up to PhD, postgrad students, like to kind of know this breadth of career options that are out there and feel like they have the freedom to look around in different areas. Yeah. yeah. I, I agree. It's something that's not publicized as much as it probably should be yeah yeah some people go into insurance like the insurance industry oh yeah uh, reinsurance because they can do risk modeling you mm-hmm. know for example mm-hmm. so that that's a possibly interesting application and i think kind of as the 
private sector gears up to like deal it deal with climate change and have that be part of their you know understanding of what their business models are going to need to look like in the future yeah. then possibly people with you know mathematical training with climate training there mm-hmm. might be some there must be some useful stuff that people could do you know in those roles yeah. um I know like Jaguar Land Rover has a kind of climate change division and they have like a whole unit that kind of thinks about what oh, that's wow. going to look like into the future nice. um which is a uh, is interesting because they do make gigantic cars uh, Jaguar Land Rover yeah <laughs> but, uh, yeah gigantic uh, gas guzzlers but uh they're thinking about it yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, that's good <laughs> yeah it's better than not right they've, yeah they've, they've got it on their portfolio yeah um yeah, so what, um, it's, uh, it's been really fun so far to talk, and it's going to continue to be fun. I didn't yeah. mean that that was going to be end, ending, but because um, we've known each other a really long time, Yeah. Um, but it's funny how, like, I think we've managed to not talk about work very much at all. That's true. We, yeah, we kind of s- stay away from it. <laughs> yeah, which is probably good, right? You do, yeah. need to, you do need to switch off of that sometimes. And, yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. So I wanted to talk, ask you about, like, your pathway, because that's one of the things that's uh, that I really like to talk about with people mm. is like your kind of pathway into science. So you grew up in, in Georgia like I did, right? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Can we go back that far? Is that cool? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Let's go back. Yeah. So it's up kind of North, North Georgia, right? Well, North, yeah. North, I grew up in Atlanta. In Atlanta. Yeah. Yeah. So. Okay. Kind of where, where in Atlanta? Like. Um, Sandy Springs, Dunwoody area. So I'm just North of Atlanta. Oh, right. Yeah. 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 yeah okay. I, I know that area North. I think, uh, yeah, it is north, and there's a single MARTA line that you can take to go from Georgia Tech in the center to yep. up there, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're, we're at the end of the MARTA line on the north side. So, right. Yeah. yeah. So how, how was that? It's um, kind of busy, I guess, but you're you're kind of in a suburb, right? You're not directly in the middle of the city, but... Yeah, it, yeah, it was it was nice, because we weren't, like you said, in the city, so it was, it was a nice place to grow up, and I, I liked Atlanta while I, while I lived there. I don't really like going back now, mainly because mm-hmm. of the traffic. The traffic, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, but it, no, it was, it was a nice place to grow up, and I went to a um, Catholic high school um, that was not too close, so we did have to drive around a bit, but no, it was a good place to grow up. And, yeah. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so when, when did you sort of like when did you sort of like start to drift towards the mathematical stuff and the the, the scientific stuff? Did, was that part of the mix pretty early on or did you kind of, you know, come do it in a different way? Yeah. I, I always enjoyed being outside, just loved being in the woods. And my dad's mom had a house in the North Georgia mountains that we would go to, uh, at least once a month and, uh, for a period of time. And I just loved exploring the woods and then kind of thinking about, how things came to be the, the way they were. And I think I've just always had this fascination with the natural world and the environment and trying to understand it. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I kind of naturally went towards natural sciences because of that um, and studied yeah. geology at University of Georgia because I mm-hmm. wanted to know about how mountains were formed and volcanoes and all that fun stuff. Nice. So, what yeah. were you folks up to? Can you remind me? What were they... Yeah, my mom uh, is a. T- she was a teacher, actually. She was a science teacher, so that might have had some influence as well, because cool. she was really interested in it and had had this curiosity as well. Like in high school. Um, she was in middle school. Middle school. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, my dad did stocks and bonds trading, which kind of gets convinced me I didn't want to do anything to do with <laughs> trying to make loads and loads of money, because I saw, as stressed as we are, I think you know that kind of lifestyle is even more stressful. So absolutely, yeah, yeah. I get that impression too. Just it's kind of 
never off and it could be a crisis at any moment I yeah. guess and something that you have to react to and um, lots of people have big stakes in yeah. in the in, in the stocks and yeah yeah mm. yeah okay so that's cool so your mom was a, a, a science teacher so in middle school I guess she would probably teach everything a bit of everything yeah, yeah. a bit yeah. of everything yeah. yeah and um yeah what did you have what did you do in high school did you have some hobbies and clubs and things that you were part of I played a lot of sports in high school oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. soft softball was my main obsession but like swimming and basketball and a bit of track as well um yeah and I did a bit of I didn't do any science clubs really no that's fine I mean it's not it's not like a requirement <laughs> I'm just just wondering <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah but I did enjoy mm. science yeah I mean I still enjoyed it through high school so yeah, and so then Athens, went to Athens, went University to Athens, Georgia. Yeah. yeah. Wanted to get out of Atlanta, probably. You're like, yeah. Well, yeah, because it, it can be nice, right, to get out. I didn't do it, but it, I understand it can be really nice to get out of your kind of hometown to go, to go to university. Yeah, it was a nice distance. It was far enough to be away from home, but close enough to go home and do laundry or get a home cooked meal. Yeah. So, nice. um, yeah, yeah, Athens was great. I loved going to UGA, and it was really fun. Did, did you decide on geology right away, or did you try some different things? Uh, I actually double majored in geology and magazine journalism, because oh, yeah. I really enjoyed writing as well, and I couldn't decide between the two. Oh, yeah, that's cool. Um, so I, so <laughs> I double majored. I, what drew me towards geology, though, was actually the field trips, because <laughs> mm. uh, there's all sorts of opportunities to go do field work, and we did an eight-week course um, in Colorado, Utah, for one summer, so it was foreshadowing. A, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, do yeah. That was so. It was a fun major for that. What did you get up to in Colorado and Utah? Was it, what, what kind of geology were you doing? Um, we did a lot of mapping of different regions that now I can't remember where yeah. they were. Yeah. <laughs> so mapping, like taking elevation measurements, and um, yeah, we'd get like a. Uh, we'd get an aerial photo of an area, and there's there's not very many trees there, so you could kind of find like the one tree on the photo, and then know where you were based on that. <laughs> and then we'd find different outcroppings of different kinds of rocks, and then try to map the underlying geology based on where things were outcropping, like what angle they were at. So you could kind of tell is this layer of rocks sloping at a certain angle? So what's going on beneath the surface? You can make some inferences yeah yeah because yeah. i guess you can get these rocks that have very clear like strata like they have very clear layers yeah. that have been kind of laid down over you know millions and millions of years but then you can get them tilted up at like a 45 degree angle yeah right and yeah. that tells you that well those layers were put down flat and then something over a long period of time kind of pushed that whole slab up right. to a 45 degree angle right yeah exactly so you can you can make um i can see that getting really complicated really quickly Right, it's kind of like you're looking at a broken plate and trying to figure out what happened yeah. to the broken plate. <laughs> yeah, it was fun, but then just, yeah, really difficult sometimes as well. And uh, yeah, it was a challenging. It was a cha yeah, probably one of the more challenging courses I've done because it was like physically exhausting as well, being mm. out in the sun all day. Yeah. But, um, it's a detective work. Kind yeah, of, yeah, yeah. Earth detective work. Yeah. Yeah, out in the sun. Um, <laughs> Yeah, okay, so, so and, that was fun. and you finished both of the, like, the geology and the magazine journalism, you kept them both through, the, through all the way through? Or? Yeah, I finished yeah. at, yeah, I finished at the same time for both of them, um, mm. 
yeah. Lots of writing, yeah, like you said. So that's, that's probably come in handy, I would imagine, all the writing practice. I guess different kind of writing, but... Yeah, I still... I'm not sure if I'm a great writer, but I don't hate it, which I think is a good thing, because I know a lot of people who are just petrified of writing and mm. don't even want to sit down to do it. But I, I enjoy it, so at least, if, even if I'm not very good at it, at least... I'm enjoying myself. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, absolutely. That makes a huge difference, yeah, right? Because yeah. for some people, it is it is torture. Yeah. Because <laughs> I've talked to a lot of people in here, and that's that's usually one of the things we talk about. And you, know, you I think it's important to point out again, although I've, I've said it on here before, like the, there's the full spectrum of different writing types in science. There's people who love it, people who like it, like yourself, mm-hmm. people who hate it. Yeah. <laughs> but everybody reaches a level of proficiency at it because you have to. Yeah, true. And you don't, so yeah, you don't have to be a great writer or yeah. even enjoy it to do science, but it helps because it's a big part of the job, you know, yeah. putting ideas down on paper. Yeah. Oh, you know. can I ask you a question? Yeah. Uh, not to put you on the spot now, but do you know any good books on writing about research and that kind of, because I've been trying to find some recently. But. I feel like I've seen some, I don't know if they're good or not, but I've seen some at the Cambridge bookstore. Yeah. Um, I'll try to, so off the top of my head, I don't know, no. but I'll, I'll try to look those up. And cool. <laughs> if we end up in town later, um, have you been by the Cambridge bookstore? We went before? yesterday. We went yesterday, yeah, yeah okay. <laughs> yeah. So there might, there might have been some there. Yeah. Uh, yeah, because I, I think I have seen some, some there. Um, I guess it, yeah, I'm trying to. I guess I've just learned by iterating over time and reading other people's papers and getting inspired by yeah. that. So I, I haven't gone through any kind of systematic no. you know, training or anything. Just kind of iterating on it. Yeah, I think, and you know, a good paper when you read it. So it's kind of like you said, figuring out what's made that paper good and trying to emulate some of those yeah. properties. One yeah. of the things I'm possibly obnoxious about <laughs> is I really don't like passive voice. Oh, yeah. <laughs> really, really, really don't like it. I'm not saying I've never used it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can't I can't claim to be that. Um, yeah. So that's that's maybe that's hypocritical, but um, I try to not use it. Like yeah. I try to just use active voice. Um, and because I think it, our, the stuff we're writing about is hard enough already. Like, right. Don't obscure it behind weird phrases like, um, well, the model was tuned to this and like, yeah. or, um, you know, tuning happened to the model or, you know, something like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, well, like a ghost did it. Like who, who did it? Like, right. who are you, are you talking about? Like the original people who made the model or did you, so like, it's hard in a paper then to understand, did the people who built the model do this or did you do this? That's or did, true. Like, yeah. Um, you know, this, uh, this solution was added to the... Yeah, to that's the, true. Well, what? what? Like, who did this? Yeah. And it can just make it more convoluted because there's not a clear, like, we did this, I did that. Yeah. I understand, like, people kind of get... I think part of what gets on people's nerves about that is the constant I, 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 we, we, we. Yeah. But you can change that. You can, like, it takes effort, but you can mix it up a little bit and yeah. make it sound not so not so repetitive. Yeah. Um, it, uh, but I understand it's it's kind of it can be hard, but it makes the paper so much easier to read for me anyway. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I, I worry that if I'm ever an editor someday, that I won't be able to like put that down. <laughs> I worry that I'm going to be like my paper's rejected <laughs> until you remove the passive voice. Too much passive voice. <laughs> this was exhausting to try to read. I couldn't get through it. <laughs> I couldn't read it. <laughs> uh, no, I'd, I'd uh, I wouldn't be that uh, awful. Yeah. But um, I do have. Um, so I do have a part of my personality called ed- Editor Dan. Okay. Um, yeah. Editor Dan is a bit of a jerk. He's, he's a little bit of a jerk. I right? think I yeah. have that part as well. Yeah. I think you need it, Full right? Full disclosure. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think you need it. Right? And it's, yeah. it's um, you have to know when to let it out, right? Yeah. So when, when does yours come out? 
Well, I mean, because of my journalism background, I'm just, I'm a stickler for like grammar and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And so I do have to tone it down sometimes because I know if I'm reading like a co-author's paper or something, like we need to get the science right. It's not the grammar can come second. So yeah, but I I have a hard time reading a paper that's poorly written without wanting to completely rewrite and rearrange paragraphs so they're more clear. Yeah. Do you, this is kind of, this is very mildly controversial and nobody outside of our circle probably cares about this, but um, when you're reviewing a paper, do you ever give that kind of grammatical kind of feedback or do you try, because there's two schools of thought. One school of thought is like, no, no, just comment on the science. Yeah. And the other school of thought is, uh, well, no, if the paper is hard to read, give them some pointers about how to make it better because the point of the review process is, is to make the paper better overall. Yeah. And, uh. Well, I guess I kind of gave my position away in, in the way I just described that. That yeah, yeah I, I think I think it's okay to give some you know comments on yeah. like how to make the writing better if if they're specific. Exactly, right? that's they need I to think... be specific. They can't just be like make this better. Yeah. <laughs> well, I guess I might do a bit of both because if if I have like a sp- specific suggestion of how to make a sentence more clear or a different word that makes more sense, I think then I'll I'll put that in. Yes. Um, but if if there's a lot of kind of grammatical or Pro, yeah, unclarity of the writing. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> then I might just make like a general comment, like proofread for you know better readability or something. Because I also yeah. feel like our we don't have time. I don't have time to go through and actually spell check <laughs> someone else's work and that kind of thing. So no. it's a bit of a balance between making. S- suggestions that are helpful and but not spending too much time on it right because yeah. we're not copy editors so no it's, it's not, not our job yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. To, well, but if you notice something and you think of something you can yeah. say it and yeah that's, that's fine yeah yeah, yeah I, I think yeah. i think that makes sense yeah and you can if you can make those comments just to the editor too you know if you think that's true maybe tell them yeah <laughs> uh to and I've never actually, I mean, there are copy editors at these journals. Yeah. And I, they sometimes do make suggestions about word ordering and stuff. Not true. not that often in my experience, but yeah. they sometimes do. That's true. Yeah, they mm. can sometimes. Yeah, Yeah, I don't know why they don't, don't say more about that. Yeah. But, um, yeah, so mm. the, I mean, for the journalism part of your degree, oh, yeah. um, what did that, so you said a lot of writing. What kind of writing were you doing? Like, what... I mean, maybe that's too too long ago and too specific. Not that we're not that uh, old, but yeah, yeah. I can still remember <laughs> yeah. when I was twenty. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, it was it was focusing on magazine writing, so it was kind of writing longer length feature articles, kind mm. of thing. So it was it was fun. I wrote a piece about um, firefighters and how like the smoke jumpers who jump into the middle of a fire to fight it. Um, and then I wrote something about how to lose weight by backpacking. <laughs> so like, important topics just, uh, like that. Just make the, make the backpack heavier. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Put more stuff eat, in there. Eat less, walk more. Uh, Watch your blood sugar. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Don't get grouchy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so it was fun because it was like a range of topics that we would write about and kind of uh, make up our own mock magazines and pretend what we would put in it if we right. were publishing ourselves. So, uh, Which you could do now. You could just make a PDF. You could, like, actually. Here yeah. it is. Yeah. <laughs> Here's our it's magazine. probably <laughs> really different now from when I was there, even yeah. though it wasn't that long ago. Straight to PDF. Yeah. <laughs> <Right>. yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. 
Yeah, uh, the long format. I guess one of the nice things about that kind of magazine writing and that, that style you describe is um, not every single sentence needs to have a reference or like yeah. not, not every single sentence need to have, needs to have hard quantitative backing behind it. Yeah. Whereas I think that's one of the challenging things about science writing. It is. One, it makes that, I'm really slow, honestly. And that's part of what makes me really slow is like every sentence yeah. <laughs> pretty much needs a reference. Yeah. It's really an introduction. You can't just say something. <laughs> it's t- Yeah. It takes a long time. <laughs> I agree. Like what are the best references? Yeah. Um, but, and which is fine. That's legitimate. I mean, that's how it needs to be. I'm yeah. not complaining. Uh, it just makes me slow. But uh, that kind of, that what you just said makes me want to write some long magazine articles where I can just write and, yeah, and just can, say stuff. You can use some, like, <laughs> fluffy language, you know, yeah. that you wouldn't use in a scientific writing. Like, I don't know. Just... Uh, Dazzling. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. That's the word that came to mind. Dazzling. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, you would never say that in your paper about the Southern Ocean, that it was dazzling in the sunlight. <laughs> yeah, the copy the editor comes back, right, or reviewer, like, this might be true, but... Yeah. Uh, Where's like, your reference? We need a citation, yeah. yeah, a picture or something. Yeah. What's the what's the spectrum yeah. when you say yeah. dazzling? What is, yeah, what's the spectrum that you mean? Okay, so yeah, UGA, so you said you really liked being there. It's big, big... Even though I'm from Georgia too, I didn't spend I hadn't spent much time there. Weirdly, so yeah. it's a big big college town. Yeah, great college town. Yeah. Good music, lots of bars. <laughs> it's yeah. a fun place to be. I spent yeah. some time in Lexington, Kentucky, which is another you know. I spent two years there, mm. and that's another big. It's SEC, right? That's yeah. The conference. Yeah. yeah. So that and so I figured like, well, it must be kind of similar to Athens. I'm guessing the size is similar. Yeah. But, yeah. yeah. Big, big football Lots town. Lots of sports-crazed people, yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. It's like a social event, you know, it's like a, it's yeah. like a community social event. It it's, is. Yeah. yeah, it's it's important. <laughs> it's fun. Uh, I did go to, I'm sure there, you've got stories like this too, not necessarily about yourself, but I remember going to one one UGA game. It was a UGA versus Kentucky, and my mm-hmm. dad drove drove us up, and um, we were in line behind, um, behind some people, and this one young woman went up, and the... The, the person, the attendant, or I'm not using the right word for this, yeah. you know, whoever's taking the tickets and stuff, yeah. said, uh, excuse me, uh, young young lady, do you have, he didn't say that, but he was like, do you have your ticket? Yeah. And so she uh, had clearly been uh, drinking a lot that, that morning. It was like yeah. 11 in the morning, but it was, right. she was already, she was perhaps from continuing over from the evening before, I'm guessing. But um, so she pulled out her wallet and her keys and then like showed her confusing like she had a confused look <laughs> on her face and showed her wallet and her keys to the, <laughs> to oh dear. the is this is this right oh, no. um so that was um i i laughed but then if you think about it you're like that's pretty sad yeah it's kind of tragic Poor girl. yeah yeah, yeah. But that's, uh, that just comes with being in a big college town like that that's, yeah that's some amount of that's going to happen i think so yeah <laughs> sometimes it's just like kids who haven't you know, um, been away from home before and now they're going a little bit crazy that yes. now they're kind of, they've, it's like a spring, you know, you compress the spring and then you let the spring go. And yeah. Boom. They have to, yeah, go a bit crazy and then hopefully come back to some less crazy level after yeah. experiencing that a bit. Yeah. I guess you, yeah. Hit, you can hit the wall a bit on the other side and yeah. you, you learn what the, the limit of that looks like. And then hopefully you decide like, Oh, I don't want to I don't want to live the next few decades like this. Yeah. Like this is this is over. Hopefully. <laughs> um, yeah. So that um, and so uh, 
I'm trying to think of another like Athens question to ask you about, but it just sounds like it's sometimes hard to describe it, right? But it was a good time, and I guess you made some friends there. And yeah, what was it know? like? I don't know. It was just fun. It was like some of the best best years of my life, and yeah, that's where I met Chris, my husband now. Yeah. So that was obviously fun. Um, yeah, just a good environment, nice school. Yeah, and when did you? Uh, so from geology for your bachelor's what did you do then and I guess it was you and, and Chris at some point together yeah yeah did you get married in college or um, we after? got married right after college right after. yeah a few months after we graduated yeah and then we we really wanted to go west you know like yeah. the stereotypical go west <laughs> kind of thing it's a good impulse I get it yeah, yeah. we had a we we tend to like to do pros and cons when we're making decisions and we had a list of pros and cons for Colorado. And one of the cons was that it was just too cliche <laughs> to move to Colorado. Um, but we did it. I yeah, we did only, it anyways. I think that only applies if you're Californian, right? If you're from California, moving Maybe. to Colorado. I think yeah. that's the only time that's really like... Okay, well, that makes me feel better. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Um, so no, no offense yeah. to any Californians who yeah. moved to Colorado, because yeah. who, who can blame you, really? I know. It's, such, it's a really wonderful, it's, it's such a great place. It's a great place. I love it so much. So you went out west with Colorado. <laughs> yeah. And you were, what made you pick through Fort Collins first? Did you yeah, we first? went to Fort Collins, yeah. and we we didn't have any jobs. We knew a family friend who lived there and said it was a nice place to live. Mm. So we said, okay, that sounds great. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, we showed up without without jobs. Um you worked in a bike shop for a while. I worked right? in a bike yeah. shop, and that was that was really fun because that was like no stress job, mm. and um, you obviously were kind of surrounded by bike culture, so you always were wanting to ride ride a bike. And yeah, it's easy in Fort Collins. Yeah, if you like biking, it's, yeah, it's enable it's enabling. It is. It's, very, it's easy to to slide into that. Yeah. The bike trails there were awesome. They're so good, just kind of weaving throughout the whole city. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah, it was yeah, it was great. And I did some racing while I was at Colorado State and I kind of thought when I started, I'm not gonna do this once it stops being fun, mm-hmm. but it never stopped being fun. So <laughs> it's just great great cycling around there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes, um Cambridge is a big cycle town too. Yeah. People are pretty pretty into their cycling. Um so much so that if you're not cycling they that some folks can almost give you a hard time about like <laughs> Why aren't you cycling? What's going on? What do you mean? What's My excuse is I'm a scaredy cat. I don't like to cycle on the giant roads with yeah. a double decker bus behind me. Like I'm just that's not I'm not built for that. Yeah. <laughs> um, it, props to people who do it. That's fine. It but. does take a bit of ignorance about the peril that you're often in. <laughs> I think. Right. You have yeah. to compartmentalize it. You do. You have to pretend like just, your bike is not capable of just completely falling apart for no reason, <laughs> which yeah. it is. Yeah. So you have to put that out of your mind. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I guess technically the same thing can happen if you're in a car, but yeah. well, I guess then at least you're in a in a cage of some sort, and it's not just you versus you know, a bus. Yes, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, more power to anybody who does it. Yeah. Um, and they, they've, they've obviously done the risk-reward analysis in their head and are comfortable with you know how that, how that plays out. Yeah, it's so much, yeah, I think I just love the freedom when, when you are away from where the double-decker buses are. It's just that, like, the wind through your hair and the freedom and yeah. I like going fast. It's just the adrenaline also is really mm-hmm. fun. So maybe I don't mind the slight danger aspect of it. But it's, yeah. yeah. Do people get addicted to the adrenaline part maybe. They I like, think so. Uh, yeah, I think so. Yeah, some more of that. Yeah, yeah. You might get crushed to death. No, 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 no. It's just fine. fun. Don't worry about it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. No, I guess statistically like, um, 
it's it's still reasonably safe, right? I mean, it's, it's, things could still happen, but statistically, I think it's it's safer than being on a motorbike. From what yeah, I understand. yeah. I mean, you hear yeah. about awful bike accidents that are very tragic, but they don't happen. I mean, I'm sure they happen every day, but yeah. So you're right. Statistically, it's probably not going to happen. Kind of like how probably. plane crashes are like, yeah, plane crashes are horrible. But yeah. if you look at the statistics, like you're you're safer you're in prob- a plane than you are in a car. Yeah. 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 Which is interesting. Mm. Um, yeah. No, sorry, I feel like I cut you off there. Were you, you were about to say something. No, it's okay. No? <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, so then what, so you were in Fort Collins and... You know, that, and that's where all, I did my PhD also, yep. as you know, I'm just saying that because we're on a podcast. Um, so what made you decide, like, oh, I'm going to do atmospheric science. I'm going to, I mean, the department's there. And I guess, you be, how did you become aware of it? Uh, I kind of, well, I kind of knew that, like, Colorado State had this kind of department. It was the atmospheric science department. Yeah. Um, up on the hill. Up on the hill. It was great. And then I thought about um, CU as well, doing some kind of environmental science. Um, I really enjoyed doing geology, but I wanted to do something for graduate school that kind of was helping with problems that the world was facing. Um, So, yeah, I just did some research and found out about the atmospheric science department and um, applied to work with Scott Denning, who does um, land-atmosphere interaction work. So how does the land surface affect the climate and how does climate affect the land and how do these couple together? I I remember... um, Looking at Dave Randall, who was also one of my advisors, mm-hmm. I looked at his website and I, I found these notes like years later where I'd been looking at his website and wrote, oh, he does something about cloud parameterization, something, something. And I wrote, sounds way too hard. <laughs> <laughs> and then it turns out, you know, several years later, I was working really closely with his research. And so he's just another one of those things where you never know where Sounds, you're going to be. So that was a note you were thinking about which professors to approach. Yeah. You wrote a note. So yeah, I wrote like, a note. Uh, like, definitely not this one. I and can't then that's work what with you, him. <laughs> yeah. And that's what you went into. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Scott Denning is a, uh, he was really uh, kind to me when I was there. Yeah. Uh, so like when my advisor moved to Atlanta, he, uh, Scott offered to like, well, if you want to stay here, you know, he's like, I can be your official advisor and you can keep working yeah. with, with Taka, your current advisor. We decided to go with him because ultimately we I wanted that physical, you know, I wanted to be in the same city <laughs> as mm-hmm. my advisor, but I thought that was really kind to Scott. Yeah. And, um, he, he gives some, he's a very dynamic presenter, a very dynamic person. He is. Yeah. And yeah. He, he, uh, you know, has that nice phrase about, uh, climate change being simple, serious and solvable. Yeah. Alliteration. Nice. Nice alliteration there. <laughs> um, yeah, I think, um, so, so what, how, how did you find working with him? He was great. Like you said, he was really dynamic. Um, he, he was really good at giving kind of pep talks to his PhD students and mm-hmm. making you feel really good about yourself, which I think, yeah, for a PhD students, important because you're often going through these periods where you're thinking, what am I doing? It's all wrong. Yeah. Um, will I ever finish? Right. So he was, he was very encouraging. And then he did a lot of work with um, like outreach and education um, while I was at CSU. And I got to kind of help out with some of that stuff. So going into schools and teaching some basic science stuff to middle school, primary school children. Yeah. And that was really, that was really fun. It was nice to have like something exciting to do that wasn't just the research as well. Yeah. So, it's great, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. yeah. And cause you can get kids so like interested in it and excited about it. And yeah. like they, uh, they aren't, they, they're, they're not jaded. 
Yeah. <laughs> and you can get them involved with something. And, and that stuff can really matter. You know, I can think back to a couple of science demos and, and science days that I had in elementary school. And even just like a simple positive comment from like the person running it can, yeah. that can make a huge, that can carry you for know years in some way yeah you just get a little pat on the back at the right time Mm. and you never know you might get to be the adult to to give that to a kid to like a little pat on the back a little like hey nice nice observation or yeah that i like the way you described that yeah and that little bit of positivity might just like be good fuel for them Mm. i mean it's not that they have to go into science or not but i just mean you can put some positivity (laughs) into the world it's a nice opportunity to do that make them feel like they can solve solve a problem because that's something important for any field, not just science or, you know, whatever you end up doing in your life to know that you can take a problem and find a solution to it or think something through. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. That's good for anyone. So absolutely. Yeah. 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 So it's funny how we both sort of stumbled on, I mean, were, were you aware of the, that department before you moved out there or? No, not, not, not really. Yeah. 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 But, so, you, but you moved there for the department, yes, right? Yeah. But it was just Google. Just, okay. found, it, just yeah. found it, you know, randomly online. Because yeah. neither of us were in that particular research community no. before we came in. So we had to learn about it. So mm. we had to find out about it either through proximity or yeah. <laughs> or just the internet. Yeah. Um, yeah so that um, was part of that outreach stuff with the little shop of physics. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah is, like Brian, Brian Jones. And, yeah. Yeah. They, they do such good stuff. And they've got this awesome kind of tie-dye theme that yeah. they, they base everything around. And um, that's, um, um, yeah, they do this, uh, they go to like Indian uh, um, reservations and yeah. should I have said Native American reservations? Native American, possibly. indigenous people. Indigenous, yeah. I probably should have. I'm going to leave that in, by the way, because I'm, I'm a human being and I, <laughs> I am not perfect. Um, Anti-CV. Yeah, <laughs> there we go. There we it's go. the anti-CV perfect. spirit. yeah. Yeah. Um, so the... Uh, yeah, it was really good. Good to know them, and really good to work with them. Mm. So, in terms of, um, so you, what was your dissertation on, like your PhD topic? So I studied I studied the Amazon forest and how it responds to climate change. So, and f- mostly focusing on drought effects on the Amazon. So it rains a ton in the Amazon, obviously, but then you have these dry periods that can be really prolonged. Um, and in the climate models, often in the future, there's more pronounced drought, which could potentially lead to forests dying and then that would release more carbon dioxide so Mm -hmm. i was looking at some of that stuff for my phd um yeah whether or not like how resilient is the forest to drought basically right do we understand that which i think we still don't really understand it i guess the phrase i hear sometimes (laughs) is um wet places get wetter and dry places get drier yeah is that fair or it sounds like that might not be quite what you're looking at in the amazon yeah i guess it's a pretty wet place yeah, I think on average it might get wetter, but you have these longer, pronounced, longer dry seasons, so longer and drier dry seasons. Mm, um, right, and then okay. if you if you look at even the past like 15 years, and as an example, there's been really severe droughts in the Amazon in 2005, 2010, and then with the 2015-16 El Nino. So three three times in the past 15 years where there's been a really extreme drought. And that's kind of unprecedented for right. the past at least hundred years, or probably longer. So, oh. so there's already signs of kind of circulation changes affecting that region. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So what? Um, and you, you said uh, that it's still an open question, like lots of things in this field are. Yeah. But like, what did you find in terms of? Do you have some takeaway things that you kind of like to talk about from that work? Yeah. So from that, we kind of focused on 
like typically, again, I use the land surface model for that, um, for my PhD. And I think a lot of these land surface models were developed in the temperate regions. So kind of how we understand trees work in like North America and Europe is how the models were built. Um, so you don't have these like prolonged dry periods and really wet periods in the, in where we live, you know? Mm. So the, the, trees and the models weren't quite equipped to deal with these droughts. And one of the things was that their roots can go really, really deep in the Amazon forest. Mm. So like 10 meter deep roots, which obviously affect how the forest can respond to a drought. So that was something that we found was important for in, including kind of the below, below ground processes and how that affects the above ground forests and carbon cycling during droughts. So some of the models that you had access to had kind of been tuned for or designed with a different region in mind, like not the Amazon in mind. So yeah. you needed to either make some modifications or use a different setup to, to be more appropriate for the Amazon in particular. Yeah, right. Yeah. 10 right. meter long roots. That's pretty amazing. To think yeah, they're, they're huge. But the trees are enormous as well, like 35 meters tall. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, 10 actually... They, yeah. 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 So, so, okay. So longer dry periods and like you said, specific episodes as well. Right. Yeah. And you got some measure or some indication of how those dry spells could, you know, impact the, impact the Amazon yeah. rainforest. Yeah. 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 And the trees also like as they're accessing soil moisture, obviously, well, when they do photosynthesis, then water vapor escapes through the little holes on the leaves yeah. um, and is comes out as transpiration. And so that, kind of affects this precipitation recycling so the rainfall kind of goes into the soil but then comes out again and that can affect the climate so if you're if your trees didn't have access to that soil moisture then that would kind of shut down that rainfall recycling pattern mm. so it's yeah it's important not just for like for the local forest but for the large large scale as well yeah because they're yeah. part of the hydrological cycle right which <laughs> has to do with Clouds. Clouds are a part of the hydrological yeah. cycle. Yep. <laughs> and clouds affect how sunlight is either reflected or absorbed in different parts of the, yeah. the Earth system. Yeah, so it affects the whole radiative balance of the atmosphere, Yeah, which mm -hmm. is ultimately like how much energy gets down here at the surface where we live. Yep. And that, that, that all carries all the way through. Yeah. Okay, yeah. So then, um, so you, you wrapped that up and did yeah. that, that project. And then um, it was Exeter right after that, wasn't it? Like you moved to... Yeah, basically, yeah, yeah, moved to Exeter um, just a few months first, afterwards. No, I went I went straight to the University, University. of Exeter, okay. but it was kind of, um, yeah, kind of jointly supervised with people at the Met Office. Okay, yeah. right, right. Yeah, and ironically, the um, person I work with the, a lot, um, Peter Cox, he wrote the model that I use now, but also that predicted this large Amazon dieback um, that came out a few, well, it was about in 2000 when he ran the model with future climate and found um, the forest dies off by 2050 because it gets too hot. Um, the Amazon? Does? The Amazon, yeah. Okay. And this was kind of That's the scary. motivation for my PhD research, and we spent a lot of time trying to um, kind of disprove that result. Yeah. <clears throat> and then I got to go work with him, which has been fun. <laughs> so... so um, well, that, that's really interesting. You say try to disprove it because that's like that's what you should do in science, right? A new idea shows up, yeah, and we all got to get together and kick it, kick right. it for a while, yeah. Yeah. I was talking about that idea with a friend, and they described it as like, oh, it's like a gang initiation. 
Only the new initiate is is an idea. Yeah. It's like a new idea shows up. Okay. Scientists, we all get together and we, we kick the crap out of it. Yeah. Yeah. And if it's still standing up, this is maybe a dark metaphor. But, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, so we all get, you know, we, we kick kick the heck out of it. And if it's still standing and if, yeah. if none of us can, can break it in that way, then like, all right, I guess you're, you're in the club for now. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you can always, it's not safe being an idea in science. No, you it's can, not. Yeah. You don't want to put, yeah, put out a new idea. But then, you know, if you put out a new idea, whether or not it ends up being correct, you get a lot of citations and a lot of inspire a lot of interesting work from that if, so. if you're the idea um, uh, this is a weird metaphor to use but like the personalizing the idea is yeah. like a thing it's not a, science is not a safe place to come be because people are going to scrutinize you no yeah, you should go to creative writing or something like yeah. that they'll welcome you ideas are accepted <laughs> they'll welcome you with open arms and say yeah come be in our in our yeah. magazine and we, we can use fluffy language to describe you and we yeah. won't need to cite you yeah. yeah but if you come into science science's territory then yeah it's going to be a nasty initiation and you're going to get yeah so how did that when you said you're trying to disprove the that result of the the amazon die off mm-hmm. um what did you find? Like, can you summarize that? Is it, um, is that prediction still valid? Cause that's a pretty scary prediction. Yeah. I mean, so I guess my PhD work, which was based a lot on some really amazing observations, which have been taken in the Amazon during dry periods. Um, and also during like experimental drought where they, uh, put a bunch of panels in the forest. This is really amazing. They take uh, a plot of land and put all these panels above the ground so all the rain that falls in the forest that gets siphoned off of the site and doesn't reach, well, it's about half the rain. It doesn't reach the, the soil. And so they impose a drought on the forest and mm. then observe what happens. Locally. Yeah. Locally, yeah. yeah. And amazingly, kind of nothing happened the first few years. So the forest kind of kept functioning mm. all right, even with only half the rainfall for a few years. Um, but then after, after about three years, they started to see effects of it. Um, and this experiment's still going on. It's been 18 or 19 years cool. now that they've had this drought. Do you remember the name of it? It's uh, called Cachoana is the name of the forest mm. in Brazil. Okay. Yeah. Um, so we used so we used a lot of data from that as well. And um, yeah, so this is, suggests that the forest is resilient to like a certain amount of, of drought. Um, and I think now the, the thinking is kind of this, this situation of an Amazon die off. It's possible but not the likely scenario okay. so it's mm-hmm. it's you know but i guess it depends on how much climate change we see if we see lots of climate change right really a lot warmer temperatures this is one of these threshold questions it is of, yeah yes at some point this will probably change in a substantial way yeah that will matter but we're not hundred we're not totally sure where that threshold is mm. right and there's lots of feedback mechanisms that could come into play in terms of when does that uh when does that it's not quite a tipping. I don't want to use the word tipping point exactly because yeah. that has a specific meaning in climate. Right. But um, you know, when when do you kind of cross some of these thresholds? Yeah. For like, no, no. Now it's now it's serious. It's not. It's resilient to three years of drought, but yeah. not ten years of drought, and not a persistent, you know, century right. scale kind of drought. Yeah. Um, that's that's an interesting question. I guess one analog in the ocean would be. There's this, you know, Atlantic meridional overturning circulation, which mm. is thought to transport a lot of heat. Well, we know it transports a lot of heat from the subtropics to higher latitudes. Yeah. But there's, for, for a long time, been a question of, is that going to slow down and, and possibly stop under future climate scenarios? Yeah. And 
Um, you know, there was a time when people were really worried about that. And then, you know, kind of more recently, it's a question that people aren't totally sure about. And it goes back and forth a little bit. Yeah. Hopefully we're converging on a better understanding of it. But for a while, people were really worried. And then for a while, some studies came out that suggested actually it's probably okay for now. Mm. <laughs> it sounds like a similar sort of yeah. scientific question where we're hopefully converging on some understanding of it, but there is still uncertainty in terms of, yeah, yeah. how long is this going to be fine? Or at some point, is there going to be a large scale change? Yeah. Yeah. And it's this, um, you know, low probability, but really high impact kind yes. of events that, yeah, we're, we're pretty confident that we won't get there, but if we did, it would be, yeah, it would have huge implications for climate and just the whole world people yeah. and agriculture and everything. So high risk events, high yeah. Risk, yeah. even if they're relatively low probability. Yeah. 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 So. yeah. Hmm. On top of the background of, um, high probability, you know, increase in heat waves and increase in average temperatures and mm-hmm. changes in precipitation and circulation, things that we can, that, that are going to have an impact. Yeah. Uh, but those are, those, those are maybe the less controversial research questions. Right. I want to say controversial. I don't mean politically. I just mean like things that scientists are still interested in and talking about. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. Cause we understand, yeah, we understand average temperatures and kind of how the curve bell shaped curve yep. of temperatures goes up and you get more extremes in terms of temperature. But yeah, mm-hmm. it's, it's kind of, like you said, these impacts and more integrated earth system type effects of climate change that I think are less certain just yeah. because they're complicated and they involve lots of different systems. And, yeah. Ted Shepard a few years ago, who, um, so he, he's, a, I think he's in Canada. Um, Thomas Berner, whom we know from Colorado State, worked with him for a while. So Ted Shepard um, was fond of saying, like, well, we're really good at thermodynamics, which is what you were just describing. Yeah. You know, <laughs> but we're not as good at dynamics, which yeah. is, you know, jet stream. And it sounds like we could lump in there. So we're really good at thermodynamics, but we're not as good at dynamics or land surface processes. We're still getting there. Yeah, right? and, yeah, and, certain and, things. Yeah, yeah. and parts. ocean circulation, which is, okay, that's dynamics. But yeah. in terms of the basic, yeah, you put more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere and things get warmer. Yep. Yeah, we got that. We got that. <laughs> and that's what, um, you know, Scott Denning, as, as you well know, used to like to, he'd show people an image of a, you know, a, a kettle yeah. Uh, on the stove, which I guess would only work in the States, because in the States we have to put our kettles on That's the stove. That's true. Whereas true. here, they flip, we, we, you can just flip a switch. It's yeah. just in the wall. <laughs> That's fine. You could just take a picture of a kettle yeah. with a switch on. But anyway, you put a kettle on the stove or you flip the switch, yeah, it's going to get warmer and the state's going to change. Like it's gonna, you're gonna, you can't just add energy to a system and expect it to disappear. Yeah. <laughs> Something's going to happen. Yeah, exactly. Um, he was always... Uh, fond of of that yeah. i think it's a really effective like visual you know image to yeah. kind of show people you know getting back to climate communication yeah and yeah and, and we're not scientists aren't worried or talking about or looking at climate change because it's been getting warmer lately you know like that's not the reason for the study it's because we know yeah you add energy to assist you add something to a system you add these gases that trap heat then it's going to get hotter and so that's yeah yeah that's the cause of all of the alarm, I guess. But, that's right. Yeah. That's the basic physics of it. Yeah. And that's been, well, I've, I've said it many times on here, but, you know, that's, Scott Denning likes to call it Civil War era science. If you're here in the UK, you can call it Victorian era science. Yeah. Know, that's how long we've been aware of that. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, yeah. So how did you find Exeter, like moving over to the UK? What was your kind of experience like moving from the U- US to over here? 
It was, uh, yeah, it was quite the experience, I guess. Well, we moved over with our daughter, who was one at the time, so that made things quite interesting, Mm -hmm. as you have experienced (laughs) as well. We have a kid pretty much the same age. Yep. (laughs) So yeah, moving internationally with a a child is, yeah, it presents some challenges, but um, it was fun. I kind of think... Anywhere after Colorado might have been disappointing. <laughs> so it's hard to top. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a bit of a period of time of just getting over, getting over that. Uh, yeah, it almost felt like we had a breakup. Mm. You know, like a serious breakup that we had to kind of move on from. So breaking up with Colorado and. Oh man. <laughs> so it doesn't have to be forever necessarily, although yeah, you might know, it, it might might get back together someday. Yeah. Yeah. Might. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. Uh, yeah but. Yeah, so Exeter was Exeter was a good place to move to though, and and um, it's pretty fun. It's close to the coast, so we go to the beach often. And Dartmoor is a national park that's right outside. That's fun to go to. Um, lots of like open moorland scenery. I've never seen anything like it, where you're just walking amid heather and there's crazy outcroppings and sheep and horse and ponies all over the place so mm. it's very pastoral yeah rolling hills landscape right? yeah, yeah yeah when we moved here steph mm-hmm. uh, my, my wife said um you know after we spent just a little bit of time here looking at those rolling hill scenes and she's like oh i finally understand a whole period of art of like why they would go out and paint some of these just you know rolling hill yeah scenes. that's true it does feel like you're in a painting a lot of the time yeah and then if you ha- go and have some tea have some cream tea afterwards then it's even more yeah. idyllic yeah <laughs> Not every part of the UK is like that, you know. No. I mean, you can find kind of, you know, grungy uh, areas yeah. for, for sure, but like it's got that going for it, yeah. rolling hills. Yeah. Um, did you find like I did, and I'm not trying to load your question up here, but um, so I found that sometimes you read about, you know, when you read about people moving countries or hear about it, you talk mm. about the culture differences, but I don't know, for me, I think we're kind of insulated from that a little bit because this kind of international culture, this academic culture that we're in, the mm-hmm. science culture, is already pretty international. And it's not that different from, from place to place, at least not in the West that I've experienced. So, yeah. I mean, I don't want to answer for you, but what did you have any kind of uh, adjustments like that? or? No, I found actually the cultural difference was bigger than I expected. Yeah. Because I kind of, you think, oh, we both, you know, we speak English <laughs> as well, and so maybe there's not that many differences. But... It was all the kind of little, there's some kind of little differences that kind of you didn't expect. And so then they made a difference, I guess. They kind of mm. added up. But, um, and they're all, I can't even, it's hard to think of examples because they're so small, but it's just like slight differences. And actually, I heard one, one person describe one time, <clears throat> and I think this might be true. It's like in the US, you go to a new place, especially in the South, and like everyone's your friend right mm. away. Like mm-hmm. wherever you go, it's really easy to make friends, and people are, super friendly. Um, they'll talk to you in the supermarket or on MARTA, the public transport or whatever. But, mm-hmm. um, so you might have a lot of friends, but not very many super close friends. Whereas in this culture, you uh, have kind of fewer friends who are closer. So, and it takes, it takes a while, I guess, to like build those relationships. But once you get them, they're really good. Yeah. So I think that's been kind of true. I feel like it's take. It's kind of taken a while to settle into the culture, but now it's like we've been here seven years, pretty comfortable and have a good group of people around us. Yeah. So it's just kind of small things. and You start to build those build those friendships. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It starts to build up over time. Yeah. Yeah, it's, um, Steph and I, we've just kind of gotten back to that um, 
that kind of lifestyle where you can have people over, you know, you can like yeah. have people over a good bit and they can hang out pretty regularly. And yeah. we've, you know, tried to make our, our home really open for that and welcoming for that. And it took a long time to build, build that back up. Right. Yeah. yeah. To build up that set of friends who feel comfortable, like just, yeah, just come over whenever. Yeah. Uh, I think you're right. Yeah. Like in the South, especially it's, it's easier to just like, yeah, come over. It's fine. Yeah. yeah. It's, it, there's not so much of a sense of like, you know, going over to somebody's house doesn't have to be a big deal in yeah. the South, in the U.S. anyway. Like, yeah. whereas is here, it might be more perceived as like, a, oh, that's a big step. Right. Like, <laughs> I'm inviting you into my house. Like, yeah. um, but uh, no, here it's it's more, much more. Yeah, there is there is a barrier there, isn't there? Like a threshold that you, yeah. have, to, you have to reach. Yeah. yeah. Um, what about work culture, though? Like, was that, that was kind of, I guess for me, that part felt similar. Similar set of questions and approaches to things yeah I think so I think it is similar although I feel like there's a better focus on like family like work-life balance here yeah so you know if I have to leave work early to pick my daughter up from school a couple days a week no one that's okay and no one you know I can say I won't be at that meeting because it's after 3 30 when I leave on Wednesdays and no one thinks that that's unusual and I think that's that's a big difference that I found just kind of, you still work hard and you, you know, you make up, if you have to make up work in the evenings or something that happens, but there's not this constant pressure to be working, you know, yeah. 50 hours a week or something. Yeah, that's so, healthier. That's yeah, healthy. Yeah. Way healthy. And I think you do better work overall as a result. Yeah. Colorado was pretty good for that. I would say though. That's I mean, true. You know, I think as a, yeah, Colorado, that department in particular I think did a really good job of striking a tone of being relaxed and yeah. laid back, but still doing really good work and still working, working hard and still doing what, what you needed to do. But yeah. balancing that with being outdoorsy and with family time and people seem to get it there as yeah. well. But it's definitely true. If, if, if we want to generalize, yeah, the U S yeah. overall is not very good at that. No. <laughs> people kind of just are, uh, you're kind of expected to be a workaholic and workaholism is like rewarded. Yeah. Um, and that, that might still be a a problem in some pockets uh, here too, but Mm. yeah, I think for in broad general terms, yeah, Yeah. I think your description makes sense to me. Yeah. It's, that's accurate. Um, yes, you've been at Exeter. Yeah. For a while. It's really nice nice to have been able to like stay there for a while. I would imagine. I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to load that up for you, but, um, you know, it's, it's, that's one of the hard things about academic life sometimes is having to move around a lot. And yeah, definitely. Luckily, you've been able to plop down for a bit. Yeah, we were really happy to have the opportunity to stay. Although, I mean, yeah, we kind of complained about it a lot when we first moved, mostly because mm-hmm. of the weather. But um, but then we had a chance to move back to the U.S. for another postdoc position for me, and it would have been another temporary, you know, short-term yeah, contract. Yeah. And at that point, um, my boss at Exeter's offered me, well, if we can get you something kind of permanent here, would you stay? And that was like, that was kind of the, t- the decision maker was, hmm. you know, stability is like you said, it's hard to come by. And, um, so you had to get another offer somewhere else to, Yeah, <laughs> I'd say that's not uncommon. I, yeah. I, not to be too cynical, but I yeah. feel like that's kind of uncommon. Like you're, you're going to lose me. Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to go. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so you're putting pressure on. It's uh, a bit of a gamble and, though. Cause I could just say, Okay, well, right. fine. See you later. <laughs> yeah, it's like a stress test. In yeah. a way. I'm like, how much do you want me here? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so it, yeah, it did work out for us. And um, yeah, so I'm, 
it's a good place to be in the work. And Exeter is really, there's lots going on. It's exciting, like exciting research culture. Hmm. And the Met Office is close by, so we do a lot with them, which is nice to have like that group of scientists close by to go to talks or go visit and talk about research. So yeah, definitely. It's a good environment. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Um, any other bit of work stuff that you wanted, like research stuff that you wanted to talk about? We touched on a lot, but if there's any other things you wanted to, in terms of the research work and science work. No, that's okay. It's all right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I like to do this, um, I like to do this list of questions kind of near the end. Yeah. Cool. You know, not, not to cut it off. I mean, it, it, it feels like about the right time to ask these questions. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, <laughs> It's a set of questions about like different things you've learned. Okay. Things you've learned in this area and that fine. area. Yeah. <laughs> so and it's um you can take as long or short as you want, right? There's cool. there's, there's no restriction either way. But like yeah. what's something you learned about um just science, something you didn't know kind of before going into it? Just as an activity and as a as a as a field and as a um but the way it works, you know, it could be something about the community or it could be something about the process of it that that you didn't know before or, yeah. or some little little kind of nugget like takeaway uh i guess i've learned and this is probably different in different fields of science but it's at least in our field it's super collaborative so yeah. you don't you hardly see any papers that are single author papers or like two authors even is uncommon so uh, but I really love that. Like, I love the um, community thing. And, you know, like, I have a few papers that I've written as first author, but lots of papers that I've just been involved with other people doing stuff. So I like that it's it's not just up to you, I guess. it's a, It makes it feel like a team mm-hmm. team effort a lot of the time. Yeah. I mean, you kind of get this, like, back thinking back to scientists in the day, like Isaac Newton or Darwin or, you know, they're like... Yeah doing stuff on their own and writing you kind of get this picture maybe that wasn't true but of them like working on their own really smart with pencil and paper yeah uh, i guess even those folks you know like newton talked to Halley a lot yeah that's bounce, true kind of not exactly bounce stuff off of Halley. i got the impression that Halley would come pester newton yeah. for stuff so there was but if, if he hadn't done that then yeah. maybe you know newton might not have bothered publishing his yeah <laughs> his work and at the at the eagle effect. pub right was that where they did it no that's and... watson and crick oh that's someone the, else yeah okay. yeah but so newton, much history in cambridge can't yeah. keep up uh yeah newton was up the road though, yeah you know, yeah here, yeah um, trinity but um, but yeah i guess that so it probably was true in the past but you don't you don't get that impression maybe when mm-hmm. i was in school um it was like you learn about these one this one person who had this amazing discovery and you don't realize that it was, was it Einstein who said like, I've been on the standing on the shoulders of giants. I think like someone Newton said that, okay. uh, Newton said that I, I'm pretty sure. And lots of, uh, I'm sure lots of other people yeah. also said that yeah. you know, as well. So yeah, we're, it's a collaborative yeah, field. Absolutely. It's really nice. And these days, um, there's a lot more scientists than there there have been yeah it's more collaborative but yeah you're right when, when you're learning about it in school it's presented as if there's a handful of uh usually not very diverse um yeah, you know, in, individuals yeah who are like are these are the folks who are geniuses who are figuring everything out yeah but, um and not to really take anything away from them but it's what actually happens is a real community thing like yeah. science is a human thing that involves multiple people it's not just some lone genius yeah you know figuring everything out yeah on their own certainly not anymore yeah. 
what's the Lego paper that you know the the um, gravity gravity wave paper that came out a couple uh, maybe like last year or the year before that yeah. had some crazy like hundreds and hundreds of authors on oh, it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, That's but they amazing. just decided, let's just put everybody who had yeah. anything to do with this project on there. And that wouldn't have happened. Like, we wouldn't have detected gravity waves without those. Yeah. Those, specifically those hundreds and hundreds of people and the thousands of other folks who also enabled them yeah. to do their thing. So it's oh, a, amazing. Yeah, and that's, that's one of the things I like highlighting on this podcast is that community aspect yeah. of it. That's part of, like, I like to interview specific people and have them kind of, you know, talk mm. about their community. I'm not, like, trying to get people to say anything specific yeah but like, oh, well, I like it when people talk about that yeah I should say you didn't you didn't tell me to give that answer so that's, <laughs> it was actually legitimately right. something I like about <laughs> science yeah no I don't you, you can just hide your script that I've handed you yeah, okay, you're like, okay. <laughs> yeah you make it sound really genuine in your reading <laughs> you're good, yeah, good, good, at, good at acting yeah um, well I had written down here like what's something you learned about the research community which I guess could be a different answer right yeah you, know, you like the community what's something you learned about the community Oh, that okay. maybe you didn't know before. Yeah. Um, I think that's not one I've asked before, so I don't have other examples in my head of like something you learned about the community. I guess to something that's not to answer for you. I just want to talk to um, to try to think about you know some possible routes into this. Mm. Um, so something you learned about the research community could be. I think um, I maybe. It was more supportive than I expected it to be, mm. maybe. Mm-hmm. And different research communities could behave differently in this way. Mm-hmm. Um, astrophysics, I have to say, not, it's not that it was unsupportive, but um, it definitely felt like it was kind of saturated with people who are like real workaholics, yeah. and they're like hyper, they're like hyper geniuses. Mm. So for me, anyway, I, f- I feel like it was more. Th- this particular research community was more supportive and welcoming than I expected it to be. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I don't know if I just stole your answer there, but yeah, well, you know, what's is there something along those lines that you feel like you've learned? I mean, kind of along it, it's along those lines is that because I'm I try to observe the people who are further along in their careers than I am to kind of think about like do I admire where they you know what they've done and like are there parts of what they've done that I want to emulate? Are there things that I want to try not to do? Mm-hmm. But I, I feel like one common thing for a lot of people who I do kind of look up to in career wise is they are really good at making people around them feel good. You know, yes. it's like, yes. it just like, so it's not just about the science. It's about the, the people that you're working with and like yeah. really encouraging them. Scott's um, good at that, I've got to say. Scott was great yeah. at that. And so that was kind of like my first introduction to that whole mm. idea that, yeah, an advisor isn't there just to like breathe down your back and make sure you're doing your work, but it's yeah. like kind of a, a coach as well. So, yeah. uh, And my advisor, yeah. Taka Ito, was like that as well, really supportive. Yeah. Um, and Which is interesting because you definitely hear like, plenty of examples of the opposite kind of advisor who's like showing up at your office yeah. every day demanding new plots, like show me yeah. something new. Yeah. Um, so it's great that, that we both had cl- such clear examples of how to be definitely. a great scientist who supports and enables the people around them by making them feel like yeah. uh, part, of the, part of the group, part of the team, mm. and by encouraging them. Yeah. By giving them, yeah, so that's, that's, that's good. Yeah. So that's yeah, good. I like that. So you're observing people. Yeah. And trying to say, well, what, what kind of person do I want to be? Not, not only like what kind of scientist do you want to be, but like what kind of person do you want to be you yeah. know, when you're in your 40s and 50s and yeah. into the future? Because that's one thing I've learned is that um, 
Yeah, it's not just about, I think I said this, but it's not just about the, the science. It's like the whole, it's the whole person, you know, like yes. you're, you're not going to do well in your job if like you're, um, you know, struggling pers- on a personal level or maybe, well, I guess in some ways work can be a bit of an escape, but in general, like healthy people make healthy research culture. Yeah. I think. So yeah, that's true. Kind of a cliche saying, but yeah. Uh. I don't think I've heard that particular yeah. phrase, so I don't know how, how cliche it is, yeah. but yeah, there's there's not, um, if you are like kind of a toxic person, yeah. even if you're really smart, I don't, there's, there's going to be ex- exceptions to this, but you know, if you're a really toxic person, then people might not really want to work with you, so yeah. it'll be hard for you to fully plug into the research community, I think, Yeah. just because people really might not be that excited about the idea of working with you. Yeah. Um, yeah, I guess we we don't we don't put up with that much uh, no. toxicity in this field. I would say, no. you know, so we don't put up with it very much. So I think trying to be kind and um, respectful to people and try to uh, treat them like you want to be treated that's that's critical too. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, you can't just be a genius and yeah. expect that to carry you through. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. How about um, something you learned about academic culture? You know, like academia, navigating that. Um, mm. one is get another offer somewhere else. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, negotiating though actually is really key, I think, uh, just for, yeah, getting what you feel like you deserve in your job. Yeah. And I think, I guess typically women are less likely to want to negotiate for things. Uh, maybe it's a confidence issue, but I guess, yeah. So maybe that's something I've learned is that it's worth kind of standing up for myself um yeah I could see you doing that in the best way which is like I mean, uh, uh, like calm but kind of resolute you know what I mean yeah like, I could see you I could see you doing that being like well no this is what I should be getting um, yeah. I'm not mad or anything I'm just like that is the this, thing this, is, the I should be getting. this yeah. is what I'm worth <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah it's not it's not an easy thing to do I guess this is one place where like having kind of career mentors and that kind of thing who can kind of coach you along and say like, yeah, you're definitely worth it. Go for it. That kind Mm -hmm. of thing. That's, that's really helpful. Um, yeah. So in in academia, it's that idea that, yeah, we can't, it's good to have kind of people to talk to about your difficulties with, you know, or questions about what should I do with my work progressing and that kind of thing. Like a mentor. A mentor. Yeah. That's, uh, and preferably somebody who's like outside of your like who you're not working with directly. Yeah. I mean, it can be that. It can be somebody you're working with, but I could see some advantage to having a mentor who's like not in your direct like chain of uh, line management and yeah, whatnot. Yeah, probably best to avoid yeah. that. Yeah. Uh, what else? Yeah. I think another thing I learned, and this might just be specific to like the fellowship I had, but I got I, you know, I've wanted to work my way up and like be a professor. Um, and have a research group and this kind of thing. But I got kind of overexcited when I got my fellowship and I was able to start um, do some supervising of postdocs and PhDs. And it was really fun, but I really quickly like took on maybe more than I mm. could have sh- or should have perhaps. Yeah. So I, it's, yeah, it's so hard to say no to things or not mm. take on new things because mm-hmm. it's all fun and exciting. But, and I'm just really bad at it, but I keep always constantly trying to be better at not taking on too much at one time. That is hard. Yeah. yeah. And, and it's, it's fun, but also it, 
it helps you feel like you're plugged into the community too. I mean, yeah. that's, that's part of why, for me anyway, that's part of why supervising and helping other people is, is fun and enjoyable because yeah. you really feel like, okay, I'm, I'm doing the community thing. I'm engaging yeah. in that community science activity and you can yeah. get some really nice results out of, out of that sort of activity. But like you said, it's so easy to get, get in over your head. Yeah. Um, cause honestly, like the, you know, management, the, I mean, they, the, the more you provide them, the happier they're going to be, yeah. uh, they're, they're, they, they, ideally they will also be concerned with your mental health and your workload. Yeah. Um, but they be. probably won't complain too much if you end up delivering a ton of stuff that, yeah. they can, that they can point to when they're justifying the existence of their organization Yeah, yeah. to the, to the even higher ups and to the treasury and all the way on up to the chain. Yeah. But that has to be balanced with like your own mental health and your own like ability to, to function well. Yeah, like, definitely. That just has to be a hard line in the sand of like, I can't mm. like, become a broken person yeah <laughs> like a, yeah a, like I have to balance that yeah um, yeah it is so easy to take on too much I'm also bad at that I'm also like I take on too much I think I'm I think I'm slowly getting better mm. I think I'm slowly like I I, I I have ended up kind of phasing out some of the things I used to be really involved with yeah uh, one of those like the Cambridge Center for Climate Science I, I was the coordinator of that for a while and I used wow. to be really active and I had to like I've had to like step that down and let other people come in and, mm. and do some of those roles. I still do like one event, one like public engagement event a year, but yeah. I I used to do way way more than that, and I've had to like let that go. Yeah, uh, it was just just too much. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, it's um. Well, thanks for adding the podcast on your pile of yeah. Let's let's oh, do yeah. that <laughs> in terms of saying yes to things. Thanks. Sure. I'm glad you said yes to the podcast. Yeah, it's fun. <laughs> um, yeah, and actually, it's funny. I was going to ask you what you learned about supervising. Was oh, okay. One of the questions, but yeah. Like you, and you kind of got into that um, a little bit. But anything yeah. else you want to say along those lines? Um, I guess I've yeah I've been learning. I mean, this is something like you kind of innately know, but people are different, <laughs> so. Mm-hmm. So yeah, there's not just like a kind of one size fits all way of supervising. And I guess I'm learning that it takes, you're not going to know right away, like what kind of supervising style your people you're supervising will need, but kind of give yourself that grace to have a bit of kind of breaking in period where you're Mm. both getting to know each other and figuring out what, what works best for this particular combination of people. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's right. Because yeah. sometimes, um, like you, you, and I experienced this uh, in astrophysics anyway. About like, sometimes you can't tell beforehand, but the like the advisor advisee relationship, mm-hmm. you know, that that there are some cases where that's just not quite the right pairing. Yeah. Like for whatever reason, yeah. personality types and the needs that needs and expectations on both sides mm-hmm. aren't necessarily quite right. And it doesn't, that doesn't have to, to mean anything negative about either one of those people. Yeah. It just isn't necessarily like looking for that right combination is important and you, it, it can be wrong. It can be not optimal. You yeah. Know? yeah. Yeah. And, um, but I, I think, yeah, I think that's important to like let yourself grow into that supervisory kind of role yeah. and let yourself try different approaches and, and communicate. Right. That's another place where like, because it's so social, yeah. like open and honest communication is really critical and just being able to talk to each other is yeah. critical. So if you're good at making people feel good and then hopefully they'll feel more comfortable around right. you and they'll be able to tell you like, this is working for me or this isn't working for me. Yeah. 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 And I think again, it's going back to that thing of showing people that it's okay to fail, you know? So I, I, I try not to put forth a 
perception that I'm perfect or have it all figured out when I'm meeting yeah. with students or postdocs. Like, I like to give examples of times I've recently not done something well so that yeah. they don't feel bad about themselves. When <laughs> here's my CV, here's my antecedents. Yeah, yeah, I'll start handing that out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, no, yeah. Now, so you're not intimidated. Here's the other side of that. Yeah, that yeah. Yeah, it's funny, we put up these websites, and, you know, yeah. and they only contain our successes, and they That's make us true. look like these monolithic like, yeah. figures, and it's just not it's just not the full picture. That's true. What's, um, you know, kind of, uh, I guess, we don't have to stop, but I've, you know, kind of wrapping up towards lunchtime here. Yeah, You've sure. got a meeting, actually, that you've got to get to. Yeah, um, so that's fine. So, yeah. uh, one, one nice thing that we can kind of end on is, what's something that you maybe don't love about your job, and then what's something that you do love about your job? Which this is a question I stole from another podcast. <laughs> nice. I like it. So. Okay. <laughs> um, let's see. I want to start with what I don't love because yeah. I want to end with the positive. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think it's this thing that we were talking about that you're you're often failing and. Uh, even though it's very collaborative, you can tend to, it's easy also to isolate yourself and Mm -hmm. um, kind of get stuck in your own rut and wondering if you're like going on the right path and that kind of thing. So that that happens occasionally where I just kind of don't reach out to people around me and, and doing research and stuff. And, and then you feel like it's all up to you, you know, and you're on this hamster wheel and you have to keep keep going so um I try yeah I mean I try not to get into that that rut but occasionally you get there where you're maybe Mm. a few grant proposals have failed in a row and you wonder like what am I doing yeah um that's a really good answer yeah I sometimes get that feeling if I'm in if I'm in a not optimal mood I sometimes get that feeling just going to a conference yeah and watching a bunch of amazing talks and going like oh what am I doing? I think I saw you put that on Facebook recently I and did, I yeah. completely <laughs> agreed. I have those periods of times where maybe it's been a while since you've written a paper and yeah, you go to a talk and it's like, I don't want to see this. Yeah. Like, <laughs> just stop doing this amazing work, everyone else. <laughs> oh yeah. I, yeah. I relate to that so hard. Yeah. And of course it's just, you know, coming from a place of maybe for whatever reason in that moment, feeling a little insecure yeah. and feeling a little bit like you haven't had a, a win, quote unquote. That yeah. sounds kind of gross, but I'm sure you know what I mean recently. Yeah. And I guess ideally, this is really hard to do, I think, but ideally we'd have enough self-confidence and enough of a reservoir of that mm. belief in yourself to, to just be excited about other people's work yeah. and to just be inspired about other people's work. But yeah. yeah, sometimes that is the hard part about going to a conference is if you're just not quite the right if you're, if you're if you're feeling a little off, that you can be susceptible to falling into that isolation yeah. and falling into feeling like you're not a part of it. Yeah, yeah. No, that's a great that's a great yeah, answer, yeah. and that is definitely one of the pitfalls about it. Yeah, it's a really good answer. Hmm. Um, you know, sometimes people say the paperwork and the drudgery and stuff. Oh and yeah, I think, and yeah, that's that also a valid that answer. <laughs> yeah, and that's that's fine. That's a perfectly valid answer. But I love how your answer was about like a potential pitfall. Yeah. An emotional pitfall. Yeah. That's very um, real and that is, is kind of easy to fall into. Yeah. Yeah. So how do you, do you have ways that you try to not fall into that? Do you have things that help you like not slide into that, um, not fall into that pitfall of feeling insecure and feeling like you're not good enough and feeling like, oh, not, nothing I do is going to 
I'm, I'm feeling outside of this. What, look at all these amazing talks that I can't possibly live up to. Um, strategies or things that ground, ground you. Yeah. I mean, I think having other people who are kind of a similar place in your career that probably feel the same way helps. Yeah. Cause yeah. then we can just like this, like we can talk and realize, Oh, it's not just me who feels this way. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can just vent to each other. That's, yeah. that's like amazingly helpful. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think having kind of life outside of work helps too, to realize that it's not just about who I am as a scientist. Like I'm a, I'm a good person, (laughs) you know, there's, there's value to me beyond how many papers I write. That's right. That Uh, all of that could go away and you could still be, you still have your value. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's important. So I think, yeah, I mean, that's, that's probably the main thing really is just having perspective on all of it. Like I enjoy my job, but yeah, I'm, it's not, I try not to let it define me, I guess. Yeah. So, yeah. And that's one of the dangers of moving to a new place for work is then usually the first set of people you're going to meet and hang out with are going to be your work friends. That's true. Yeah. And they can be work friends can be great. But then if you don't have anybody outside of academia, yeah, that doesn't give you another like kind of community or set of people to latch on to. Yeah. I'm, I, I'm excited. I'm kind of excited to talk about this right now because I'm, I'm making some I feel like I'm in that nice process of making some good friends else who are really outside of work and yeah. outside of what I do. Who, who won't listen to you this know? podcast? Um, probably not. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Probably not. Um, it's fine if they do or don't. Either way is cool. Um, and, uh, but it's, it, I can already notice it like being so helpful. Yeah. Having this other person I can sit around and talk to and have amazing conversations with that have really very little, if sometimes nothing at all, to do with my professional, you yeah. know, what I'm trying to do for my career that are just other thoughts I have. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> and other thoughts they have and other ways we can relate to each other. Yeah. Um, which is, is so good. So that's such a good answer. Yeah. That's really um, good. it's really got me thinking about that. Yeah. And I mean, and probably, you know, having supportive family too, that, yeah. that helps too. I would, you know, for oh, yeah, me it definitely. does. Yeah. Yeah. Having yeah. I somebody mean, somebody who believes in you. Yeah. <laughs> that helps. Yeah. And who can like recognize when I'm, when I come home really stressed out or something and, gives me a beer and yeah, says relax. So, yeah. yeah. Which is helpful because he owns a beer store. And yes. So there's never a... We always have <laughs> lots of good beer have. around. Yeah. yeah. Should, we, should we plug the beer store oh, <laughs> on the yeah. podcast? Yeah. yeah. Why not? Yeah. Yeah, sure. Uh, Hops and Crafts. Yeah, my husband owns a beer shop, which in, is great. In Exeter. In Exeter, yeah. Um, yeah, we all, always have lots of good beer around. And yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Can, yeah, it's like craft beer. Craft. And it's... Uh, it's not, you can't go in and drink it. You go buy it and yeah, take, you go take buy it home. Bottles. It's not like a pub or it's not like a bar. You yeah. Know, it's a, yeah. You, you go get it and take it yeah. elsewhere and enjoy it. And enjoy it yeah, at home. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah we can tag them. You know, I can tag them in the, <laughs> do okay. the Twitter tag thing if you want. Yeah. <laughs> By the way. Um, I, oh, I wanted to warn you, there's a fire alarm test at 12. So in about five minutes, uh, it's so going to should... go, go Okay. Off. Well, I'll say my favorite yeah. thing about the job oh, really yeah. quick then. Um, yeah, well, I, 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 I think it's the people, like I've been mm-hmm. saying, and then just kind of the, the freedom to, that we can do what we want a yeah. bit. I mean, yeah. we are limited by funding and all of this, but the fact that if you have an interesting idea, you can kind of pursue it a bit. Um, yeah, and there's not someone breathing down your neck every day saying, yeah. be at work at 9 and leave at 5.30. And, yeah, that's true. Um, so, yeah, I really appreciate that freedom side of it. It makes all the hard work kind of worth it that we can kind of come up 
on our own what we're doing generally on a day-to-day basis. Like nice. you can do a podcast yeah. in the middle of your work day. And yeah, it's, that's and right. It's, yeah, I can, a yeah, valid part of your work. Part of my outreach. <laughs> yep. It's fine. It's <laughs> yeah, good. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's a really good answer too. Yeah. I don't want to cut you off if there's more to that. You no, want to add? Right. Yeah, it's yeah, all good. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Anna, uh, I really enjoyed this. Yeah. And um, I like how, I like your you're a positive person and a calm person. I yeah. like your positivity and your, your <laughs> you know, calmness. Yeah. But it's also really, it's, it's fascinating to like hear you describe some of the same, like, you know, emotional struggles that I go through. Yeah. Because they can internally feel so dramatic. And sometimes when you, like when I look at a super calm person like you, mm. you can get the wrong idea, right? You can think like, yeah. oh, this person has it all together and they never have any worries. Yeah. So like, it's really good for for me to hear like no no that, that's all there yeah you know it's just but I, I think you have a calmness that can can relax people around you and yeah, can well, make, nice. make people kind of, kind of feel feel good and yeah. um so I really yeah I'm glad that we did this I'm glad to know you yeah and thanks yeah I'm glad to uh that, and it's been it's great fun. that like our, our kids hang out and they they play together yeah our kids are hanging out right now yeah. doing who knows what <laughs> yeah they're both both expat kids who yep. moved to the UK at a very young age yeah and uh you know Americans in, in the UK mm-hmm. and going to primary school over here yep <laughs> uh, with an interesting blended accent that they can yeah. switch back and forth depending <laughs> on who they're hanging they've been like cousins for each other effectively yeah they yeah. Ha- yeah it's really nice seeing them growing up together a bit and yeah absolutely they're still they're still good buddies it's been been fantastic yeah Yeah. so i'm really glad that we've had that opportunity yeah me too cool very nice well should we get out of here before the fire alarm okay i mean it's not a huge deal if it ends up on the (laughs) the recording but (laughs) there's one at 12 and then there's one at 12 it's a bit traumatic for your listeners maybe Um, so yeah yeah. it's uh it it used to just start full blast but you know Uh, and it was kind of startling but they've switched to something that kind of ramps up more uh, gradually now yeah yeah so that's it (laughs) okay how are you feeling thank you that's great yeah thank you yeah thanks Uh, there you have it dr anna harper at Doc A. Harper on Twitter, a lecturer in climate science at the University of Exeter Mathematics. So yeah, thanks again to Anna for spending some time for sitting down with me and discussing her work. She describes herself, by the way, on Twitter as a coffee-powered climate slash vegetation scientist. And uh, yeah, so if you want to follow her, again, Doc A. Harper, that's her Twitter handle. For updates on the podcast, that's at ClimateSciPod. And that's, uh, yeah, you can post, you can post, oh my gosh, I'm falling apart. You can get updates about the podcast there at ClimateSciPod. Okay, so uh, I'm at Dan Jones Ocean, by the way. If you have any thoughts or requests, you can also reach me there at Dan Jones Ocean on Twitter all of that and uh next month uh, i do have a couple of them recorded already i will work on doing my best to get them out by roughly the middle of the month so uh, yeah thanks for understanding on that and uh, i will keep you up to date with if i decide to do any kind of patreon thing i don't know i don't know i'm not i'm not committed to that yet just give me some time okay talk to you later bye bye